Do you have any questions before we get going? It's just gonna... I don't know. I don't know what there is to say <laughs> before we start. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I had fun rewatching these movies, though. Were they both? They uh, were both rewatches for you. Yeah, I mean, I watch Heat probably a couple times a year, but uh, let's not start the episode before hey, we started hey, the episode, sorry. guys. Just, okay, just sorry, answering sorry. the question. Good God! <laughs> well, I don't know what Josh is off going off the rails interviewing you before we've hey, even begun. This is, this is an organic process, Sean. I don't know why you're <laughs> trying know. to stifle the creative process here because i'm a control freak okay <laughs> and there's rules there's unwritten rules that nobody else knows but i expect this podcast to follow oh man we live in a society come on <laughs> And with that, hello everyone, welcome to the authoritarian podcast that is Nashville CA, your double feature, double weekly podcast. I am the one who writes the unwritten rules, the co-host from California. My name is Sean, and with me as always is my buddy Josh. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. It's uh, sweltering here today, and we're not supposed to turn our thermostats below 78 degrees in the house. Yeah, well... Who's who's dropping their AC below seventy eight? Come on now, are you are you kidding me? How do you sleep at seventy eight? It's that's so warm and sweaty. Well, by the time it's nighttime, hopefully it's cold enough around like midnight or two a.m. That it, no, no, yeah, we're we're what's, lucky in California that it drops temperature. Yeah, what's, at night. what's your nighttime temperature? I mean, I'm gonna say it is. It's still about uh, 80, 85, it looks like. At night? At night. Oh. It, at 2 a.m., it gets down to 78. That's the low. Oh, that's a little different. Yeah, it's, and it's sticky. Right now, it is 90 here, and humidity makes it feel like 99. We have 57% humidity here. <laughs> That's gross. Yeah, it's you feel yeah. like you never get dry. Like you get out of the shower and you're just wet all day long. It's not pleasant. So when are you coming to visit? <laughs> I was just going to say, it looks like uh, mid to late July, July 20th or so is on the books because I'm going to D.C. So, um, well, I was going to visit, but I mean, that was a hell of a sales pitch for Nashville you just gave me. But we've got, uh, I can find some vegetarian hot chicken, so we've got that going. There you go. Yeah. So today we have a guest who rudely broke the rules, my unwritten rules, and spoke <laughs> before he was introduced. But what do you expect when you've been friends with someone for about 20 years? It's my old <laughs> high school buddy, Azam. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty great. Well, it's excellent to finally have you on the show and to prove that I have real-life friends <laughs> that don't only exist on the internet, so here we've got one. Yeah, I think I've known you since, like, freshman year of high school, huh? Yeah, freshman year, bonding over our love of 
like glass jaw <laughs> and other really weird like core metal bands from and, the early uh, aughts playing fallout till way too late and deftones oh yeah. so much fallout so much fallout and deftones i still and, think about playing fallout 2 listening to the entire saturday night wrist album over and over and over yeah that's such like a specific period of my life it's totally ingrained in my head for fallout 2 also, oddly, I listened to a lot of Mortician while playing Fallout. So that band is also like just horror movie clips running and then <laughs> just yeah. shooting super mutants. And oh, where did my youth go? Man, yeah, we used to play a whole lot of video games. I remember I didn't have an Xbox, so you used to bring your Xbox to school and then come over after school. Just to play Halo. That was fun. That was where Halo is where it all began. Yeah. And you act like we don't still play video games. I know. I, <laughs> like you, act like, just play you act through. like we've grown out of it. We just finished playing through like all the Halos on PC together. So. Yeah. And we also play. Josh, have you heard of the game um, A Way Out? It's a co-op no. prison break style game. No, that sounds fun. Oh, it, man. It's, it's very fun and it's so you it's a lot of split screen where you're both in the prison yard and one of you needs to do this one task while the other person's off doing the other thing so you can always see what your friend is doing mm -hmm. in a similar way it's the same company that made it takes two and um i'll spoil the ending the last ending segment a little so if you really want to play that game i recommend it but it turns very much into a like the ending of heat so it was pretty oh, yeah. fucking awesome where Azam and I had been working together the whole time. And then at the very end, the game throws a complete loop at you and suddenly you're, you're going against each other. And it was, it was oh, pretty wow. great. I remember being like actually upset that we were betraying each other. Yeah, I think I, I was bad. apologizing. Also, you a were, you were a fucking rat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So which movie, um, which movie do you guys think we should start with today? I watched Heat first and then followed it up with To Live and Die in L.A., but I feel like you could go either way with these. Uh, that's the same way I did it, too. Uh, and I don't know why. I don't know why that felt more correct, because To Live and Die in L.A. is primarily a daytime movie and Heat is a nighttime movie, so it, it should have been the reverse, I think. Well, does the night come before the day? Or it is the day come before the night. Philosophical Ooh. question. I, I like getting this existential like... this early in the show. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I think about like how is Australia ahead of us or behind us? And it's neither. They're just at the same time. <sighs> and then light I... and dark. Man. It's like the default of the universe is actually dark. It's just we happen to be in the presence of a star, which lets us be alive. Kind of crazy. It's so dark out there. It's so scary. <laughs> oh, man. This isn't an alien podcast. So we can... It could be. <laughs> well, you almost picked alien. I did almost pick alien. And like, funny enough, the guy who did the, the music for our heat, I think he worked on the Alien 3 soundtrack, too. Oh, really? Wow. That's... 
heat music is iconic, and I could not tell you a thing about the Alien 3 soundtrack. I used to oh, yeah, love it's... that one. I I love the the Alien 3 assembly cut, but it's still difficult to watch the original cut for me. The original Fincher cut. But yeah, assembly this guy, cut's uh, not bad, but yeah. Go uh, ahead. Elliot Goldenthal, he did the music for Sphere. He did uh Pet Cemetery. He did a bunch of like iconic demolition man. He did some iconic stuff. Is Sphere good? Because I feel like that's a movie that I saw when I was about 15 or 16, and I thought I was intellectual at the time, and so therefore I thought Sphere was good. But I can't tell if that was just me wanting to be pretentious. So I saw Sphere for the first time on a plane during like a 26-hour flight on the way back from Sri Lanka. So I don't know if... And I thought, like, it was amazing, but also there was nothing else to do. So, yeah, you can't judge a movie based on a 26 hour flight. (laughs) (laughs) I do think I did to live and die in L.A. a disservice by watching Heat right before it and then taking like a 30 minute break and then starting to live and die in L.A. So by the time Live and Die started, I was already exhausted. Oh yeah, and, and it's a it's a frantic movie too, so it is. And also Heat Heat is such like an endurance run of tension and emotions and yeah. just the duration of it that by the end of it I'm just I just wasn't really in the mood to watch a second movie. So I think I think this if I were to actually host a double feature of this, I definitely think you start with the daytime movie to live and die in LA and you finish with heat. Yeah, I, I kind of agree, especially even just character wise, like rewatching live and die. I realized I was not rooting for a single one of these characters, but then heat, I'm like rooting for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. They're the inverse that way. Although I do have a lot of uh, Willem Dafoe love for to live and die in LA. Oh, yeah, he's he's pretty phenomenal. Well, let's start with To Live and Die in L.A. And Josh, okay. this is your movie, so why don't, you, um, why don't you kick this one off? I've never seen this one before. Well, the problem is I, had, I was ready for heat, so give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't have my Wikipedia open either, so. Okay. So, To Live and Die in L.A. is a William Friedkin movie from 1985, and it is... Uh, It is the most 80s movie we've watched on here, I'm going to have to say. Like, the uh, soundtrack by Wang Chung that just drives through the whole movie. That, like, insistent beat. I love it. It stresses me out, this soundtrack. (laughs) Yeah. It's just going and going and going. It feels like you're doing cocaine when you watch this movie. I think that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. It it works really well, because it's like... We're on this cocaine ride with William Peterson <laughs> as he like spirals down into out of control madness, and this music is a great way to depict that. I would never, I don't think I would want to listen to this soundtrack just hanging out at home though. I feel like I would just start like tweaking out and needing to vacuum or something or like keep moving around the house and cleaning things. No, I think like constant motion is a 
pretty good way to describe the whole movie in general. Because mm-hmm. even the shots, the action sequences, like there's so much frantic motion in this movie compared to Heat, where there's so many more like just long shots of things. It's pretty crazy to watch them back to back. I mean, Heat is it's got all those scenes of like sitting and listening and interrogation and stuff going on. And this, even when there's an interrogation, everyone is like at different angles and uh, is just it feels very jagged, like even in its staging, let alone the fact that people are shooting each other constantly in this film. Oh, yeah. It's hard to settle down into this. Mm-hmm. Like heat, you have time to really sink into those scenes and those locations and get a feel for it. And here, there's an old human giant sketch about a, a it's like a travel show where it's, but they just, the three guys show up at a place and they go, we're at the Eiffel Tower. Let's go. And then they just sprint <laughs> off frame. And so they keep showing up at all these different travel locations, but they're literally there for two seconds. And then they just shout, let's go and run to the next location. And that's how I felt watching this movie where Peterson's just like, all right, all right, all right, let's go. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next one. I think he specifically, like, a lot of the takes were first takes. And he specifically chose a crew that was good at that rapid style of work. So, I mean, it all contributes to that same feeling, I think. Uh, what did you think of the the location, Chiron's, uh, being all in different fonts <laughs> throughout the whole movie? I, I, I actually, that annoyed me to no end, especially <laughs> the last the last location and date, which was totally different and then started counting down. Yes. Like, I, I for one, I don't realize, like, I don't understand why. They had to be telling us what the day was. And then to have like the countdown time for a time that didn't actually matter. Mm-hmm. was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, this. This was. Um, this took over like a month or so. The story here. But it's still but don't, it's a Christmas movie in my mind. I, but it's not at all. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's L.A., so it's not like you could tell regardless if it's winter or not. Um. But I don't think there's any reason for the, the movie to keep telling us what the date is. And then I'm with you, Azam. I don't, I don't understand all the different fonts. And there, there's a lot of like hyper-stylized stuff in this movie that I do get. But this one, I'm, I'm kind of scratching my head at. Josh, do you have any insights into that? No, but it did remind me of Den of Thieves with its kind of half-assed labeling of things where it was like yeah yeah we're gonna get this guy's name and this guy's name but not everybody's yeah i was also thinking of the hurricane (laughs) heist letters blowing away in the wind oh see but but that's that's stylization in the in the uh service of something at least (laughs) that that movie actually surprised me i wasn't expecting to enjoy it but hurricane heist is is a great bad movie. Yeah. Azam, have you seen Den of Thieves? Because we recorded an episode two weeks ago. I was like, oh man, this... I feel like with Den of Thieves, this is leading perfectly into Heat, and this would also go so well just as a Heat double feature. I think uh, you've mentioned it before, but I never actually... My dad saw it. I usually watch movies with my dad, but uh, 
that's one of the ones where I was, I think I was in New York or something and he watched it. Really? Your dad watched it without you? It's like, it's cheeseburger heat. It's, <laughs> it's yeah. heat covered in like butter and salt and it just, <laughs> it's it, junk food wait, heat. It's great. Is this the one with the uh, 50 Cent and yeah. Gerald Butler? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got to watch it. It's so good. And it's I mean, I it's seen... real cheese, but it's so good. I have seen, like, I think one of the shootouts where they're stuck in traffic. Yes, that's a great but, uh, scene. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, I haven't seen the movie, so I should probably check it out. Josh, when did you first see To Live and Die in L.A.? I mean, this is a Friedkin movie. Mm-hmm. Um, William Friedkin, he's, I mean, I know The Exorcist, uh, and then... French Connection. I have, I've never seen The French Connection. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, once it's an like... episode, I have to really disappoint Josh by telling him a movie I haven't seen. <laughs> Last time, Last time, time was Casablanca. Casablanca. <laughs> uh, no, this time into the French. We'll make a list of all these movies one day, Josh, and we'll, we'll just do an episode about them. <laughs> it really is kind of shocking. Yeah. He did Sorcerer, too, which mm-hmm. is another, it's an endurance test to watch for me. I sorcerer rocks though. You know, sorcerer is just um, it's a top gear travel episode. Oh, it's a top gear travel episode with an incredible amount of anxiety. It's <laughs> I know, it's, it's very stressful. I think you could put. Have you ever heard of the Iger Sanction, a Clint Eastwood movie from the seventies? No. Uh, we covered it on the show, and it's like. The second half is all like Swiss mountaineering and they just literally climbed a mountain with a a camera crew and were doing like dangling on ropes over cliff edges and just crazy shit. So I think for just like a heart stopping double feature, you put on Iger Sanction and uh, and that movie and it just, yeah, it would it would be the most stressful Three and a half, four hours of your life. Uh, Sean, you know, the other movie I like, can't rewatch, even though I love it, is um, although although I don't I don't know how I'd feel about it. Black Hawk Down is oh, yeah. uh, it's, it's, that it's, movie just is relentless. It's kind of tough now to rewatch for me, at least. Yeah, I, whatever, like whatever taste I had for military movies. Uh, it's I mean largely gone out the window, so I, I'm not really into much war stuff anymore. And I know this isn't a uh, a war podcast, but we have been at war since we were friends, essentially. So it's kind of crazy to think there's an entire generation that doesn't know anything other than that. I know it's there's no there's no detachment or like fantasy. So even when it's like military fiction. I'm still kind of bumming on it. Yeah. Unless yeah. it's something like uh, Triple Frontier, which is like <laughs> military thieves, and then I'm all on board. Yeah, I remember I used to really like uh, that Mark Wahlberg movie, Three Kings. I was just oh, going to yeah. say Three Kings. Yeah. I loved Three Kings growing up. I, I remember, you remember Will? Yeah. He told me in the scene where they execute a woman. That they they did that for real. <laughs> that is such a will thing to say. I hope he doesn't listen to this and then like try and kill us. But I remember because so nine eleven happened when we were freshmen, right? 
Yeah. We and, were merely fresh, man. Yeah. And basically, the only reason why I didn't get relentlessly bullied is because we played football. And, like, Mike Austin and Brad Noel were always, like, walking around me. So I had two huge guys with me all the time. But I remember uh, when I started growing my beard out a tiny bit, Will was like, yeah, you better uh, shave that a little bit or we're going to have a problem. I was like, oh, my God, this guy. He's so nice, well, but then he's so scary. Yeah, misguided, misguided angst and youth. I don't know. I got really weird. I was so close with him in like sixth, fifth grade. And then I was like, eh, you're kind of weird now, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, funny so enough, I'm... talking about 9 11, all these airport scenes in both of these movies would like never happen now. Mm-hmm. No. But also, being a Muslim, I there's such a really weird start to this movie that I yeah. don't understand, which so is that, this, the that suicide totally bomber. That totally puts me into 80s action movie mode, where, like, 80s and early 90s, majority of bad guys, like, generic bad guy was either Eastern European Cold War or it was some Middle Eastern guy. And yeah. that's, uh, Azam, have you seen the new Top Gun? No, I actually, I want to see it this weekend, but I've heard it's excellent. So, first of all, if you get the chance to see it in one of the expanded formats, I would definitely recommend it. It's worth the extra couple bucks. Um, I got to see it in IMAX, and then we went back and saw it in, um, what do they call it, Screen X, where the screens are like actually on the side of the room as well. Um, Which I didn't even know we had those in Nashville, so it's it was very cool. That's crazy. So with Screen X, I understand, like, so it, when it's shot, like, a POV cockpit view, mm-hmm. you're then getting the sides of the cockpit on the side screens? Yes. Like, the glass of the, okay. Yeah, and so then, anywhere you what want. About, super immersive. Yeah. And then when, when it's a plane in a long shot, you're just getting a very, very wide shot? Yeah, you get extra, um, so that's what we were debating at first, because... Uh, Andrew had seen other movies where it was like they just stretched out the existing image over the three screens, but this they actually shot that it specifically. Yeah, like it's recropped and everything, so it was like a weird janky kind of pan and scan. But this yeah. they shot stuff at the time to specifically, I guess, for this and for IMAX to be able to use the the additional screen space. Oh well. Yeah, that sounds totally worth seeing then in yeah. a larger and I, format. I had friends who did the, the 4DX. I don't know if you guys have those where the seats move. Oh, is that where the, the seat? Yeah, yeah. yeah. A and friend of mine just saw Jurassic Park in that. But Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that was a very silly movie, but I would totally see it in 4DX. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. But yeah, Top Gun. Actually, I just rewatched the first one, too. And like some of those plane scenes really hold up just because of the lack of CG the, to date anything. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and that's um, the new one. The There's a thing from t- uh, Tom Cruise at the top of it where he says, like, this is real actors in real planes really pulling uh, these stunts and doing like 5Gs and 8Gs or whatever. And 
it, it opens with Tom Cruise pulling 10 G's in oh, this experimental plane. And it's just, it's, it's it is really cool. But the, uh, <laughs> Sean shaking. His I'm head. shaking my head. No, I mean, I didn't pull ten G's. Spoilers. I'm hoping went that no Mach one, ten. I'm yeah. hoping no one died. Mark ten the- and ten G's are completely different things. <laughs> G's are a, me- a like a measure of force, force. Right. gravitational yeah. force. Mach ten is just ten oh, times yes. the speed of sound. Uh, Josh. Either way, get I, it right. I think your eyeballs would explode into your head. Either way. <laughs> I also yeah. I because of that movie I played all of Ace Combat 7 in like the past week just because I wanted that jet experience and I love the Ace Combat games from when I like the PS2 days. And it was so much fun just flying around jets and blowing shit up. Well, yeah, I know someone passed away during the filming of Top Gun cuz one of those stunts went wrong. I think it was like a camera, one of the camera planes went down like near Oceanside. So hopefully, really? yeah, and they, I don't think they ever found the guy because there's a dedication Oof. at the end of that, of Top Gun. And when I looked it up, it was like, yeah, this guy during one of those dives where the plane spins, I guess he couldn't recover from the dive and like the plane crashed. And Jeez, I... yeah, so hopefully I'm, that's why I was surprised that they did it again for the second Top Gun, but. It's uh, speaking of playing yeah, games, I didn't know though, that about the first one. Uh, this is the second week in a row where I just want to play um, Payday after watching these movies. Oh. Yeah, I got major cravings for Payday after this. Azam and I used to play Payday. Yeah, I was so, so bad at that fun. game. Oh man, but uh, it was so, so much fun. It was though. so fun. And shit hits the fan and everything's going wrong and you just want to grab one more duffel bag full of money. Yeah. (sighs) I just, I kept on quoting that we want the bank's money, not yours speech each time I played (laughs) that game. You won't lose a dime. Your money's insured by the government. You won't, you're not going to lose a dime. (laughs) Think of your families. Think of your loved ones. (laughs) Anyone has heart trouble? Go ahead and lead against the wall. I know. Oh man, I've seen this movie. So in Den of Thieves, (laughs) <laughs> they they zip tie the hostages and he goes if, if you need to go to the bathroom piss your pants <laughs> so that's that's kind of a comparison of heat and den of thieves right there oh my gosh yeah i know we should probably save heat for the heat section but <laughs> yeah we should yeah i uh, mean there's a lot to talk about with that heist scene so so to get back to just the seriousness for a bit uh, do you think representation of Muslims is getting better in movies and stuff? Oh, 100%. And I think, like, there's representation where you see Muslims, like, practicing, and they're it, sometimes, for me, it feels like they're just there to be a token. But then there is other representation where you see Muslim actors just being actors, like Rez Ahmed in... Uh, oh man, metal, metal, in sound of metal, yeah, stuff like that. And I mean, him in general, in most of his scene, in most of his uh work, he's not playing like a token Muslim character. He's just a character who happens to be Muslim. And I think the siege did a pretty interesting job of doing that with Tony Shalhoub 
where, I mean, the whole premise of that movie was Muslims are being rounded up, but you also had this Muslim detective on the side, too, who was grappling with I, all that stuff. I watched The Siege when I was, I don't know, when did that come out? Like 2000? <clears throat> yeah. It was pre-9-11, right? Yeah, yeah. So I probably watched The Siege when I was like 14 and didn't get it. I mean, I, I got it, but I, I, I thought it was going to be like an action movie or something. So I didn't. But my God, what what like a prescient movie. I, I'd be yeah. really interested to go back and rewatch that because I think that's one of those movies that was really ahead of its time. And I don't it just but it. Nobody realized it at the time. Yeah, well, everyone was thinking about it after 9-11, at least in our community. So, Yeah, that must have been a scary time. I'm just... Yeah, I mean, not a great time to be a freshman in high school. So, Is it ever a good time to be a freshman in high school, though? Oh, good, good <laughs> point. Good point. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it's like... Going back to live and die, like some of these airport scenes where they're running through LAX. Like, I remember when LAX used to look like that. Like, I remember going to pick relatives up and stuff. It's kind of crazy to see LAX evolve from that to what it is in heat and then to what it is now, where like you can't even go near the field, let alone run on the runway. Like Robert De Niro did. Their airports seemed so quaint back then. Like they were little mom and pop shops where you could just kind of stroll around and do whatever you wanted back in the day. Like, like rewatching. I love 12 monkeys, but like rewatching that airport scene now where he just walks through with all those canisters. Oh Oh yeah. How did this ever? I need to rewatch that movie. Um, I haven't watched it since it's based or it's like an homage to La Jetée, which is this French experimental short film. It's like 25 minutes long and it's all still frame images, basically telling the same story minus the animal rights, Brad Pitt madness aspect of things. Um, But I think, is that one of Bruce Willis's best movies? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's for me, it's like, I mean, not counting Die Hard. It's like Unbreakable was excellent. 12 Monkeys. That's, there was a, a Twitter thread, uh, a Twitter prompt where somebody asked, What is Bruce Willis's finest performance? And my, the first thing I jumped to was Hudson Hawk. I haven't seen that one. Oh, it's, yeah, me either. Oh, it's a fun, goofy, like heist caper movie where uh, he times out all of his heists by singing uh, like classic uh, Frank Sinatra songs. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, it's did really that fun. Come out, did that come out before Die Hard or after? After. This was like one of his passion projects because, um, you know, he... Uh, has his alter alter ego, his music performer of uh, Bruno. Did you not, did you not know this, Sean? No, I didn't know any of this. Yeah, yeah me either. You you can 
buy it. I mean, uh, I think I saw it on cassette recently, even the return of Bruno, which was his first album. <laughs> it's great stuff. And it's I think so, my favorite. Oh, go ahead. No, oh, it's just interesting to think about Bruce Willis as. Because I, I was watching, they have that uh, documentary series on Netflix, like about all these old movies that mm-hmm. we all grew up with. And Die Hard is one of those episodes. And they're talking about how the casting of Bruce Willis was seen as like something crazy because he was like a more comedic TV actor at the time. And like no one could buy him as being someone in an action role. And like for me, like I grew up on Die Hard and Pulp Fiction and stuff like that. Like I mainly saw him as an action hero. So it's yeah, it is weird to think about Bruce Willis being known as a comedy guy. But it's like kids now think Liam Neeson is an action star. And it's like oh, back in the day, Liam Neeson did Irish, like, I, not <laughs> Shawshank, Irish sorry. roles and stuff. Schindler's List. Yeah, Schindler's, yeah. I've never yeah. seen Schindler's List. Oh, man. Sean, <laughs> buddy. <That's>, uh. <laughs> I, I don't know what to do. Casablanca, Schindler's List. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not qualified to host a movie <laughs> podcast. Each, each time someone says they haven't seen Casablanca, I think of uh, that line in Men in Black where they're trying to explain the situation. They're like, yeah, it's like Casablanca, but instead of Nazis, it's aliens. And like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Because in Den of Thieves, Casablanca comes up because it's a, it's a bar where cops and criminals hang out together. Yeah, you're going to slowly understand Casablanca without ever seeing Casablanca. <laughs> I always think of, um, was it in uh, High Fidelity, where he's like, I, you know, I haven't seen Evil Dead 2. Ah, you haven't seen Evil Dead 2 yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I like the first Evil Dead very much. Because I, I saw that series backwards, mm-hmm. so I started yeah, with Army of Darkness, me too. then I saw Evil Dead 2, and so by the time I got to Evil Dead 1, I'm like, this, this isn't very funny, and <laughs> it's not as well like made and shot as the previous ones that I saw. Yeah. Also, I think the Evil Dead remake might be my favorite Evil Dead movie. Put that on the board. Ow! Is your heart okay? Ow! <laughs> I have to go take a nitro pill now. <laughs> Evil Dead remake kicks ass, dude. One of my favorite theatrical experiences dragging my friend who's not really into horror to that movie. And I didn't know what I was about to subject him to. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's fucking hardcore. So... To live and die in L.A. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. His, uh, William Peterson, what is his name? Chase? Chance? Ch- uh, Chase. 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 I just kept calling him William Peterson. Uh, his partner, is this the first time in a movie where a cop three days away from retirement says, I'm getting too old for this shit? Hey, that's, I've never heard he- that before in my life. <laughs> What came out first, this or 
Lethal Weapon. Um, Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon yeah. one. Yeah. Because I, I called that out too. I'm like, that's the Murtaugh line. You can't say that. Lethal Weapon so, is 87. Yeah. Oh, so two years after this. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's crazy. Murtaugh's a thief? <laughs> he, uh, from... he stole my heart and he stole the line. <laughs> um, so, what do you, do you, what do you think of the title? Just the title intro with these, like, dark red sunsets or sunrises that look almost like they're on Mars. And then the super saturated, like, dark red and weirdly green letters of the title. It felt very 80s Miami Vice type vibes for me. You don't get color like that these days. No. Even when we watch some throwback thing. Yeah. Yeah, but even Drive was like. Drive was still trying to be cool and like have like a coherent color palette, whereas this is like so 80s bonkers. These colors don't seem like they should exist well, in yeah, the same plane. Drive was like the synth pop, like retro Tumblr 80s aesthetic going the entire time. Mm-hmm. And this is just cocaine 80s. This is totally cocaine 80s. Yeah, this is like, oh man. I, I think the wildest scene is when they're in the strip club. Um, and the background is like bathed in red light. The, uh, the ticket taker booth is bathed in green and then the stage is like blue. So everywhere you look, it's just different, like neon eye blasting colors. This movie is so, it's like really overstimulating. And (laughs) that lighting setup was one of my favorite shots by far. Um, should we also get into just like Josh? I feel like you chose this movie for me because of the counterfeiting scene. Yes, that's oh. exactly. I wrote this is classic Sean I, as stuff. Soon as, as soon as this started happening, I was like, "Oh, now I know why Josh wanted me to see this." Because mm-hmm. you know that I'm just into like people doing technical shit on camera. Yep, and people who know what they're doing doing technical shit. It's it's wonderful. And yeah. so this is so cool watching this guy. It's like he he blasts $20 bills with lasers onto a metal sheet and then uses like acetate and dyes and all sorts of things to create molds of oh and, and then seeing him like touch it up the little the little spots that didn't get any ink in them and yes, they were mixing actually the, mixing the ink by hand just by eye to get the color of green that he needs for like how fucking cool is that that this guy can just like mix the color of money on a on a palette yeah it was a real counterfeiter doing a lot of those scenes too it's really so cool. i was wondering yeah. if they because the the hand <clears throat> movements you couldn't just get an actor on like two days training to do that you got to have an actual artisan yeah so i was curious about that no they were they totally hired an actual counterfeiter to do some of those scenes and then the scenes with William Defoe where his face is showing is obviously him, but some of the hand stuff is this counterfeiter. And I guess they were counterfeiting actual notes with some minor change. And I think either one of the producer's kids or someone got a hold of some of those bills and tried to buy candy or something. <laughs> There's some <laughs> drama happened. Yeah. <laughs> Because I know some of those bills leaked out and people got in trouble over it. 
it's funny that in that kid's mind, that makes it better than stealing. But stealing would be <laughs> so much better than trying oh to pass gosh. counterfeit money. Yeah. Man. The, yeah, this uh, was a fun movie. I like seeing uh, John Torero in it, too. Oh, man. This cast. Tur- the cast. Turturro? Yeah. For I don't, I don't know what you just said. John, I said Torero. I don't know why I said Torero. John, John <laughs> Terrarium. <laughs> <laughs> Who, John Turturro has, uh, we saw him on uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. And I'm always excited to see him. I haven't seen him in a ton of stuff, but he always kicks ass when he's in it. And he's great on um, Severance. He gets oh, uh, yes. he gets peed on in a Transformers movie by a Transformer. <laughs> I like Does he now? Yeah. John Turturro up for anything as long as there's a paycheck. <laughs> oh yeah, some of these some of these lines too are classic. Like when a uh, Defoe's character he kills that. I forget who this guy was but he goes to his house that's under surveillance and he kills him yeah yeah and before he kills him you <laughs> said he says uh your taste is in your ass <laughs> like what what, what an amazing like line i don't know how they came up with that what did that mean in that scenario i he, i mean he picked up some like artifact that was in the house and then yeah, he was like, like your taste is in oh, your ass and then he right. shot him the thing the thing that he got hit in the head with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the pre-Columbian yeah, later fertility on... doll. Oh, that's what it was, yeah. I think so, yeah. So later on when he sticks his gun in a guy's mouth and says, you're gonna suck on this until I get my money, like, does he shoot him right there, or do they just sit there for a while with his gun in his mouth and they just kind of hang out? I think they're just chilling. Yeah. I think my favorite line was uh, when William Peterson is sleeping with the uh, informant. And after they're done, after you see his dong in the previous scene, uh, (laughs) (laughs) she says that she wants some money for the information she's given him. And Peterson says, you want bread? Fuck a baker. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, the whole sexual extortion of the source aspect of this, like makes you question who's the good guy. Oh, for Definitely. sure. I, I, there's no way the good guy is Peterson no, in this movie. No, <laughs> I mean, the good guy, I, the only good guy is his new partner who I always forget his name. But. John Pankow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Playing. What is it? Vodovich or something. Um, and who I recognize as cousin Ira from mad about you. <laughs> right. But then even him at the end, like, he's like, to the informant who's trying to escape L.A., it's like, you work for me now. It's like, oh, no, the cycle continues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seeing this movie, just the repeating cycle of this over and over. By the end, that was probably one of my favorite aspects of this, is that, like, how many people have to get blasted in the face with a shotgun before someone's going to stop this cycle of madness? Yeah, well, I mean... There's so many shotgun face blasts (laughs) in this movie. There's three, I think? Yeah. Uh, And don't forget the dick shooting. Oh, yeah. Dude, there's so (laughs) many, like, just 
kicks to the nuts in this movie. Uh-huh. It's like the default <laughs> move is like knee to the groin and run away. Yeah, I like when Turturro, when they're in the hospital, Turturro gets the jump on him talking mid-sentence about his sick daughter <laughs> yeah. and just like out of fucking nowhere spins and punches him in the face and then kicks him. But he does the like that '80s wrestler move of the the ear slap. The ear slap. Don't slap yeah. someone's ears. You give them tinnitus. Oh, tinnitus! I know. You burst an eardrum. Thank that God, way. my, my yeah. How are your ears feeling? My, You're all recovered? a little better each day. Honestly, I we're pretty much back to a point where I'm mostly not noticing it, except for every now and then. That's good. and it it have like good moments and less ones, but. Way better than what it was. I was really freaking out there. Yeah, for a and the, while. the anxiety of overthinking about it just makes it more apparent. So. Oh, it's so bad. And then, like, yeah. my anxiety would then, like, increase my blood pressure. And then, like, when your blood pressure is increased, oh, you your tinnitus gets worse. Yeah, I, I felt so yeah. bad for you. I was like, I know exactly what you're going through. <laughs> I'm freaking out, man. <laughs> oh, God. And it was just like, it wasn't worth it for the drummer that I played with. I'm like, God damn it. You're not good enough for me to <laughs> be yeah, injured yeah. by. So if one thing that happens out of this podcast, that's like a good thing is just please wear earplugs. Oh, definitely. I carry my earplugs on my keychain everywhere. Me too. Me too. What, That's what, a new thing for me. What kind of earplugs you guys got? Because I bought some, but they're only like 18 decibel reduction. Uh, which 18 I don't... is probably good enough to okay. attenuate most things. But uh... I went to, I don't know if you know the band Bully, um, but oh uh, yeah. yeah, Austin and I, also from the Discord, uh, went and watched them a couple, I guess a couple months ago now. Um, and it that show was loud as hell, but my ear my uh, earplugs did pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I think eighteen. I mean, I use. I think, I forget what the brand is. It's, Edimotic or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think those are eighteen, and they uh, they attenuate enough where I can still hear most of what I want to hear, but my ears don't ring or my head doesn't feel stuffy afterwards. I used to use some uh, Surefire, like, firearm earplugs, mm-hmm. but the fidelity was terrible. And I remember thinking, oh, all these bands sound terrible. And it was just <laughs> my fault. Totally my fault. I saw Russian Circles. I was like, they sound way worse than the last time. And our friend was like, dude, your earplugs are terrible. It's like, oh, my God. What a waste. I use, I use Eargasm earplugs oh i had those too i didn't like the case the, the metal can yeah uh it's it seems fine to me for now uh doesn't bug me it's a little bulky but on their website it says they're between 16 and 21 dbs of reduction so i, I think you're right in the safe zone josh okay. but yeah the eargasm ones are really good as far as you pop them in and all the mids and highs are still there, so you can still have normal conversations yeah, and the that's... guitars come through and all that. And it's, it, it really doesn't fuck the sound t- right. too much. Yeah, you're just the, looking the to attenuate, not to block. for me really. is so important. Mm-hmm. Also, so I highly recommend getting a good pair of earplugs because they will last years and years if you take care of them. Yeah, I think the ones I have were like 20 bucks or less. Mm-hmm. and. 
they're pretty great. I've been using them for a while. Also, yeah, like later later on, now that I've recently had a tinnitus scare, watching like heat and everyone's just firing automatic <laughs> rifles and just like gah, 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 I'm just like, oh no, please, that, please, please. I, I know we're gonna get back to that scene, but this, I have so much to say about the sound design for that whole movie, but especially yeah, we'll, that scene. We'll get back to it. We oh can't go gosh. there now. We can't go there we now. We can't do it. We can't do it. Um, let's see. We got Turturro running around in the airport. Oh, when, when they go to meet Defoe's girlfriend, I'm like, is this an avant-garde strip club? Oh, What's yeah. going on here? What is this show <laughs> that exactly she's performing in? <laughs> <laughs> it looked like, Josh, it looked a little bit like an all-that-jazz kind of thing. See, I was wondering if you if you liked it because it, it seemed like experimental dance theater to me. Uh, and I know that you like that better than like seven brides for seven brothers kind of dancing around. I might like this if it wasn't such a creepy setting. I don't like how the people are sat above and around the performance. It reminds me too much of like the end of the Requiem for a dream. Requiem for a dream. Yeah, Yeah. no, I, I totally see that. So if it was like more conventional seating or something like that, yeah, I'd be into it. Or like at the theater that we saw in Suspiria, mm-hmm. that little dance theater that they have, that small indoor one, something like that. Yeah, but this this feels too much like um, an eyes wide shut kind of scenario <laughs> environment. Which I mean, given Defoe's character, kind of fits. Mm-hmm. What about his kimono I was collection? That Defoe's outfit from um, from streets of fire would really go well on this movie that blacks like rubber latex oh yeah yeah yeah. butcher's apron that he wears in that movie i could totally see him wearing that in this i love uh, defoe's character is great in this i love how everyone knows exactly who he is and he's like i'm not a hard guy to find i'm at this gym like all the time like everyone knows him they just can't touch him because they haven't like caught him in the act it's a great (laughs) So this movie really cracked me up. It's it's obviously like hypersexualized, but to have the entire meetup and interview take place over the course of a gym hangout where they're they're getting naked <laughs> together, they're working out together, they're in the sauna together. Yeah. It's just like adding adding this homoerotic element to this meetup and I I feel like Defoe always has his characters often have kind of that like ambiguous sexual identity feel to them. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. He's got like a real David Bowie kind of vibe where yeah. you're like this guy, 100%. he will get down with anybody uh, and, and just be cool with it. Which is, which is yes. good. I mean, he's very progressive in that way. It's hard not to love him in anything he's in. And also, I wrote a couple times that he's just a beautiful man, especially at this age, um, with that kind of those high cheekbones where he's got uh, if if there were like male supermodels, he would have the face for it. Yeah, when I was trying to think, when did Defoe start to look like a maniac? Because it's not here, not quite yet. No, I mean, but it's like, is it Platoon? Because Platoon is like two years later. Yeah, and I feel like maybe the filming of Platoon 
might have aged Defoe like five or seven years. Because I feel like he's a different man in Platoon. And it came out... When did Platoon came out? 86? Like the year after this? Somewhere in there. I'm trying to think of the first time I actually saw him in a movie. It might, unfortunately for me, be... Oh, it'd be Spider-Man. And then oh, after where that, he was probably, Green Goblin, yeah, yeah, which he reprised be... for the latest one, which was pretty great. Yeah, Boondock Saints. Oh, Boondock Saints, maybe. No, I think which I saw Spider Man like, before that. Boondock Saints was definitely a high school movie where, like, high school and a twenty year old. I'm like, oh, it's so cool, and blah, blah. And now, oh, it's unwatchable now for me. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. And the it's whole like the it's like, I feel like Boondock Saints takes like the worst aspects of Guy Ritchie movies and really settles in on them, which is like homophobia and racism as punchlines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which rewatching Snatch recently, it was like this, I I I remember why I love Snatch so much because it doesn't rely on that too specifically outside of like the gypsy culture, but watching like the gentleman. Every character in the gentleman was just like racist and the, oh, used yeah. as a punchline constantly. I'm like, God damn it, Guy Ritchie, you still think racist jokes are funny. And like that's all you can write now. It sucks. And the whole the whole cat thing in Boondock Saints, I can't watch now. Like just thinking of a cat getting you know. Destroyed. See, I've already forgot I've already forgotten what happens to the cats. Oh, <laughs> Uh, accidentally gets murdered by a gun. Ugh. They set the gu- They set a gun down on a table, and it goes off. And yeah, it's pretty bad. I remember <laughs> not liking it then, and I still don't like it. Wow, you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> I mean, ahead of the curve on like seeing animals get splattered on a wall. I mean. Uh, yeah, I was not thrilled about that watching when I watched Southern Comfort recently. It's a cool 80s movie with guys running around the woods and whatnot. But at one point, there's like local Cajun people that lived out in the woods and they were going to slaughter two boars regardless. So the filmmakers decided oh, why not no. film it and put it in the movie. And it's just like that. That sucks. Don't don't do that. Yeah, it's not needed. Same with like. Friday the 13th, part one, they chop a snake oh, in half snake. with a machete, yeah, and it's yeah. like, fuck you, that sucks. And I refuse to watch um, Cannibal Holocaust. Yep. Even though right, the, right. I think the soundtrack to Cannibal Holocaust is really good. I've listened to that. Yeah, Riz or, or Fuck Lonnie. that movie. Uh, but supposedly, the indigenous peoples did eat the turtle. So, I mean... I don't know if doesn't that helps. Help. No, <laughs> it doesn't. I still don't want to see it. Is the thing. No, I also. Well, I was going to say I don't want to see, but I was I was pretty happy seeing William Peterson's dong in this. <laughs> that's. I, it was he, that's that sex scene. He I mean, walks in, so he goes to her house and walks into her room, and she's sleeping naked. And he starts stripping his clothes off as she starts putting her clothes back on. Yeah. <laughs> and then, 
it's just weird and how that scene was shot so you get the perfect like ball silhouette (laughs) you you see it first full frontal and then you see it that outline of it and it's it's just beautiful 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 silhouette of two hanging gems yeah (laughs) yeah some of the some of the shots in this movie are great though like especially i know we haven't talked about the car chase yet but uh like there are some shots in this car chase where like the camera is focused on the driver and then it pans to the side to focus on where the car is going and like in 85 they must have had a rig like on the hood of the car right to do stuff like that yeah and it's nuts to me because so much stuff you would do actually on a process trailer but friedkin is like no, let's just actually run these cars out and Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. It's and some of these like the cars skidding like in traffic mm-hmm. in front of like these trucks and in front of the trains and like uh, going against traffic in eighty five. Like this is before Ronin, right? So Oh yeah. And just the volume of cars and Realizing they're 80s cars with no traction, just skidding around everywhere. It's thrilling. Right? Like, when you have to hire 50 stunt drivers to fill in all of those traffic cars, some of those stunt drivers are bound to be unskilled. Yeah. Uh, The last 30, 40 minutes of this movie really picked up for me. And, like, I I was with it, and then it really started to kick ass at the end. One of my favorite shots from that whole car chase um, sequence, it's so cool, and it's one of my favorite tricks that you see in movies sometimes is when you get a chase shot where there's a camera vehicle staying parallel with the, the vehicle it's pursuing, and they shoot across a gap across or something, lanes. and then, and yeah, then, and then yeah, something yeah. pops up in the foreground, and so you get like these layers of pipes or bushes or whatever and it it adds like the sensation of speed like i know they're not running it at speed but oh man it feels so fast it it makes it feel so fast and then this this movie had a shot where then it then keeps going and the car goes like up a bridge and so then we keep going and then we get the red car that's pursuing and then the beige car drops back down into the shot and then they both now we're with uh, the entire car chase it was just such like a masterful shot and timing and framing and just just to like lo- the logistics of working this out in 1984 yeah oh, seems man. so impressive to me it's it's i mean i remember this car chase being great but for some reason i didn't remember it being so good and just some of the stuff that must have been so novel, like, like before this movie, we had probably like Italian job and bullet and stuff like that. But just the sheer volume of cars in these scenes and having like the stunt cars weaving through, it's just crazy. Well, and I feel like bullet is still, it's a great car chase, but a lot of it is made up of cuts. And so much of this is these, long shots of this action happening like they're on a super long lens so you can film them for a long time and kind of refocus as they come up um and 
I have no idea how you stage some of this stuff, like, or how you write some of it or plan for it. Are you just driving around and you see the that bridge with the, with the exit and everything? And you're like, oh, I know what we can do there. Or do you write that and look for the perfect location? That kind of stuff blows my mind because it's such kind I of mean, a I'm signature sure little piece. They have to have mapped this one out because it's so intricate in how it uses the environments mm-hmm. like as set pieces. So I'm yeah, sure like when when they kidnapped the the one guy who has the briefcase and they hold him up underneath the overpass. Right. And oh, then man. that overpass just happens to have a little cutout pedestrian section that's perfect for then a sniper to look down and balance his rifle <laughs> and aim it down at them in this in this abandoned train yard. Like that couldn't be a more perfect location. Yeah. And uh, Josh, I don't know if if you if you write based on the location or if you just search and search and search for the location based on the writing. And that's uh, that same setup happened in Point Blank, if you remember, except for they were in the L.A. River. Uh, I did, and I was. It made me very happy that this is our. I can't even remember how many times we've gone to the L.A. River now for this show. Yeah, the third time I think. At least, yeah. Yeah, but this definitely reminded me sniper on an L.A. overpass. Mm-hmm. Yeah iconic too and this was the first time i've seen water any water in the la river it still seems like they're like splashing around in two inches of it but it's something azam do you remember the game stuntman ps2 i brought it up last episode josh didn't know i was talking about uh i i think i had it yeah were you driving around and you need to like make close calls with the pickup trucks and pass this and then skirt in front of the train and get a close call with it and yeah yeah it's just this very much reminded me of that, and I think the stuff with the semi trucks just weaving around oh, in man. this like tight alley with all these semi trucks and guys like moving fish and shit out there. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what you do, truckers. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> they move fish primarily. All the, all the set pieces were so great, and like every, anytime I see chases in L.A., I always think of like the Terminator Two chase, of course. But like, just at the end of this chase, like there's a scene where it's just going through the carnage, and uh, you hear like some traffic report, news traffic report saying, "Oh, there's a minor pileup, and it should be cleared <laughs> in a few minutes." And it's just like absolute devastation everywhere. It looked like, like a scene from War of the Worlds. Yeah, oh, like yeah. That- in that semi truck that's jackknifing, oh, that's and just taking all the out way every down. single car yeah. for three lanes with it, and <laughs> that new that news report just being like, oh, another afternoon in L.A. We'll get a Caltrans out there to clear things up. Shouldn't only add about ten fifteen minutes to your commute. Uh, I like the fact that they have the car chase. They take their their hostage dude uh, under the overpass. He gets shot, and then there's more car chase. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, they well, lose then, that one car, and then two just show up shooting yes. at him. Yeah, they they get away from the one car, and it's like, woo! And Peterson's already... You can tell this man, like Dennis Reynolds, stealing someone's identity, he's getting <laughs> off. He's totally. getting off on all of this. <laughs> so, and who, yeah, go ahead. who exactly was chasing them? Was it 
it wasn't the FBI. Like, no, I think it was the uh, fake diamond sellers that I think that guy's name was Lynn um, is supposed to meet up with. Oh, with I his, see. His yeah. satchel of fifty thousand uh, dollars, and they were waiting for him. I think. Yeah. Yeah, but he didn't have. He was actually an FBI agent. Fun little plot twist. Yes. Right. Ling Ling was. And that's why he didn't actually have any money, right? Well, he had because he had money. Oh, well, he yes. had the money strapped in the briefcase yeah. strapped to him. Yeah. Yeah, because I was thinking, like, who has who in this movie has the resources to deploy all of these cars over like a relatively small amount of money? Mm-hmm. But, now yeah. I will say I don't know if it's because I had just watched Heat prior to this, and Heat is such a plotty movie just there's so much plot and side character movements back and forth that kind of cross over each other that i wasn't following a lot of like the tiny details of this movie right like i couldn't quite figure out like there's the one fbi guy who seems to be playing every single side Mm -hmm. um one of the higher up fbi guys and i couldn't really figure out what his angle was or who who he was backstabbing and who he was still working for if he was straight or if he was crooked i i I was getting confused by some of those things i think there are a lot of i don't want to say underdeveloped because they're not like the main focus of the movie but a lot of things that are just left out there like that it's kind of like classic noir in that way where they're like, yeah, there's some steps in between, but we're just going to show you the highlight reel. Like, you get, if there's a cool heist right. planning, you get that, and then you get the gun down, and they're kind of like, yeah, this stuff in between, it's, you know, uh, to the point where, was it, um, it's not Maltese Falcon, I think, it's another one of the classic noirs, where they, the screenwriter, like, actually called the author, um, I think it was James M. Cain uh, to like, hey, what happened to this character? And he's like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> he <laughs> doesn't even care. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely has that vibe. Can we just go over like Peterson's whole arc here? Mm-hmm. I think it'd be interesting to talk about. So we talked about like the cycles of this movie. And so off the bat with his boss, we see his boss is climbing up the side of a building. Doing some real, you know, this is like Maverick from Top Gun. Yeah. These yeah. guys, they're just like a real hot shot shit. And so his boss does that. His boss tries to then go off solo and That's his partner. solve this crime. Not boss, partner, yeah. excuse me. Older, more uh, experienced partner. And then he gets killed with a shotgun blast to the face. And now we see um peterson's character slowly change over the course of this movie and like after they kill uh after ling gets killed and they find out that he's an fbi agent peterson's in like all black with his shades on and he looks hung over but yeah we see this man like his whole style and everything changes over the course of this movie and he starts to like drink harder and harder and become more and more of like a a wild man and an adrenaline junkie and it i mean it all starts with that 
ridiculous. It's not even a bungee jump. What the fuck is he doing out there? Just like jumping with a steel cable wrapped around his leg? What's he doing? <laughs> yeah, I think the the setup was supposed to look like he was about to commit suicide. And then once he jumps, like you see the cord. I know, but the cord... It, it doesn't look how, like... How does that not like yank your leg out of its socket? It, it didn't... Yeah. It, that didn't look safe at all. <laughs> and who are these people cheering him on after he jumps? <laughs> so they were all just like waiting for him to kill himself. And then they're cheering him because it was actually just a stunt. I'm, I don't know. It was all the cops was... that go to the cop bar afterward. Uh, and cause he says something about his partner being the best at rigging a safety line. But I like the fact that he rigs the safety line to go up inside his pants to the harness, which is under his clothes, because they need it for the gag where you think he's going to kill right, himself. Right. That would serve no purpose other than for the audience. Right. Has either of you bungee jumped? Oh, no. No way. <laughs> never, never, never. I, I skydived, and bungee jumping seems infinitely scarier than skydiving to me. There's no perspective when you jump out of a plane. It just looks like you're like, jumping into a giant mosaic pattern bungee jumping like the ground is right there yeah bungee jumping base jumping all those things no desire to do it whatsoever i i don't think i could jump out of a plane that gives me the same kind of creeps that thinking about deep water or or deep space does where oh well deep water is crazy (laughs) i'm glad someone feels me on that Deep water freaks me out just thinking about it. Like I don't I I get extremely claustrophobic, but for some reason deep water is like way worse thinking about just, it. Just imagining myself in a little like a little bubble that I can breathe in and then just like 500 feet deep in the middle it's of like the ocean. Combination <laughs> combination of both of my fears at once. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot. <laughs> already breathing heavily now <laughs> oh but this happens even in video games like if my character is in like a small space and i can't jump or something i start to get a little claustrophobic we were playing that mining game with the dwarves deep rock deep rock galactic yeah and i was having some trouble at first with that until you figure out how to shoot through the walls and everything yes yeah. then i was felt- okay yeah, it's like a, the descent simulator, basically. <laughs> oh, we burned out so fast on that, though. It was fun, though. We beat the game, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so back to Peterson. Uh, <laughs> so, adrenaline junkie. I don't like when he's so high on his adrenaline that he basically starts assaulting that woman and like wrapping her in his legs. And yeah, the camera cuts away, but it's gross. Uh, but by the end of this movie, I think it's very fitting that he gets shotgun blasted in the face the same way his partner did. And now his partner, who was the straight man, has now, the cycle now continues. Yeah, the whatever it takes cycle. We have a new aviator wearing douchebag who's out on the streets just doing whatever it takes. And hey, There's always one in Los Angeles. I'm sure the cycle has continued up till now. Oh, I'm sure there's dozens of these people in Los Angeles, <laughs> part of the police department and everything else out there. Yeah, I that the last scene 
the fire scene was pretty great. Yeah, let's oh, get yeah. to that. So his partner, I can't remember his name, figured out earlier in the movie that that's where the counterfeiting yeah, operation he, was. Well, he had he had gone to like one of Defoe's old art teachers or something and figured out where his studio was. <laughs> How crazy was it when Defoe was burning a painting hanging against the side of his house? <laughs> his like, house? Dude, yeah. That's such yeah. an easy way to burn your house down, you weirdo. It's like, <laughs> that's Los Angeles. They know about fires. Not in the 80s, they didn't. I guess not in the 80s. The 80s yeah. was a different time. Yeah. 80s, everyone's just chilling and pumping diesel and smoking cigarettes. Oh, man. Yeah, and flicking the butts, like, to the side of the road. Oh, cigarettes yeah. just went everywhere back then. Yeah. Oh, dry bush? Yeah, perfect place for my lit <laughs> cigarette. Uh, Sean, did you have any reaction to everyone smoking in the airport? Just regret that I didn't get to live in that time when I smoked. Uh-huh. I went, when I smoked at an airport, I had to go into the smoker's lounge at the Reno airport, which is, like, a tiny little room with an industrial vent just, like, sucking all the air out of that place. And it's still, like, a disgusting hot box. And the funny thing was, there's, like, a tiny bar in there, and you sit down to smoke, and it's like, you must order a drink to be in here. I'm like, fuck, I'm not, I'm not ordering a drink. To, I'm already paying a price being here that I'm not going to also have to buy one of your drinks, too. Come on. But yeah, uh, smoking in bars, smoking in hotels, the, you know, the only place I feel like you can still smoke now is casinos. And even that's really phasing out in a lot of places. Yeah, well, a lot of the casinos are ironically trying to be more family friendly now. So You got to get yeah. the kids hooked. We were get the kids hooked on the arcade, and then when they turn eighteen, the arcade turns into the slot machines. Uh, kids are already hooked on loot boxes and all kinds of stuff, like mobile games, whatever. I know. Thank God I didn't grow up in this time. <laughs> but <laughs> Just... like, we we've been. Uh, I never finished watching Mad Men, so I started mm -hmm. it over, and like that show too. Like every single scene everyone is smoking all the time and it's it they portray it so coolly like that era was a totally different time i feel like Mad Men did something i only watched three or four episodes but i feel like in the first or second episode they do a thing where they're sitting down at a meeting and everyone's smoking and then everyone has a coughing fit and then everyone stops and i feel like that was them just acknowledging like okay yes people who smoke would cough and they just yeah. did, and now we're done, and now it can just look cool forever. I think I think you're right. I remember so that. That's one of my pet peeves: is smokers not having smokers' coughs in movies. So then Josh chose all that jazz to show me, which is like the <laughs> ultimate anti-smoking movie. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> and speaking of smoking, how do you film a fire scene like this logistically? Without the smoke, yeah, without the smoke, how do you keep actors safe? I just, how, logistically, how the hell do you pull this off? Because it looks like they were filming in there. They're not just in and out. They're doing an entire stunt sequence in right. this burning room. I guess you have Yeah, there's multiple sequences, lines. too. Yeah, exactly. It has to be gas. Because, you know, uh, I don't know if they still have it, but 
Universal Studios used to have a backdraft uh like show. And it was yeah. a huge like pyrotechnics show, but that was all gas because there was no like smoke filling everywhere. I remember that from being a kid and I actually watched it on YouTube somewhat recently and yeah, all, all like the, the pieces of the set start falling down. I told Josh I, during the Twister episode, there's a part where like they're in the house and the house is collapsing around them. And I told him it was like very reminiscent of the, the backdraft ride for me. I you, like hydraulically controlled right, pieces exactly. of building dropping. Yeah, I remember being so scared the first time. I think I must have been like five or six the first time I was in there. And like I was terrified and I started crying and my cousin had to pull me out and he's so mad because he had to miss the ride. He's still like upset about it, I think. It's pretty great. <laughs> but yeah, I there must be gas, like a setup like that, because the flames on that show are so clear and nothing's obstructing it. There's no I know, but it's impressive that they, they hide it so well, because it does mm -hmm. really, to me, look like the set is burning, and it's right. not just your traditional fire bars, or whatever they call them. Um, I like, but this, this, this fight scene is pretty great. Go ahead, Josh. I was going to say, I liked that they kind of set this up earlier, when um, the three guys were in the steam room together, and Peterson and his partner are, like, panting, like, they just, they can't get comfortable uh, at the gym. They're just like, uh, uh, and Willem Dafoe is sitting in the corner, just totally fine. So yeah. I feel like that transfers over to this fire scene where John Pankow is like freaking out. His eyes are wide and, uh, you know, he slips up a little bit uh, until he finally gets the drop on Dafoe. But Dafoe is like calm, cool, and collected the whole time. Yeah, he's totally in his element under pressure there mm -hmm. yeah that's cool i did not pick up on that yeah i was frustrated with defoe here because defoe does get the drop on him but then defoe instead i thought defoe smashed his head with that that two by four or that beam that he hits him with but apparently he didn't so then defoe is gonna light him on fire by yeah he's gonna cover him, him with, him the with shredded, shredded paper, paper? Yeah. what kind of <laughs> maniac shit is that <laughs> that's, this is like a, the, that's like the craziest movie, method i've ever villain, heard of trying to kill someone <laughs> an 80s villain setup without the monologue <laughs> i'm just trying to picture like that would would that work how long would that take like hey, he's he's I, an artist he's an artist that's true. Okay, you got me there. That would be artful to do that. And uh, that that pretty much brings us to the end of this movie here with, uh, I think his name is John or whoever. Um, the, the weird freeze frame effect was pretty wild when he fires the gun that kills oh, Defoe. And the mm -hmm. screen kind of whites out? Yeah. Yeah. It's such like a, a weird little like comic book frame moment. And then the burning. This is a great stunt burn here yeah. with defoe screaming and it goes on for a and while it, i was gonna say it goes on they don't cut away from it it's like full burning yeah and then you see it's like a close-up and you can see that 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 mask that they use the fire mask yeah on the stuntman but it's intense it's really cool i love stuntmen they're for a while i wanted to be one when as a kid because i thought it was like all movie magic and then my mom was like, no, they actually, like, 
it it's movie magic and it's somewhat safe, but they still like get really fucked up. Oh like, yeah, oh, they get hurt all the time. <laughs> yeah, we're starting a petition on this show to to get stuntmen Oscars. We haven't done anything about it, but we'll keep talking about it. I'm surprised it isn't like mentioned at all, especially in all these effect categories, because you have like multiple mm-hmm. sound effects, sound design effects, visuals, like, and I guess stuntmen are doing. I don't want to say they're doing less crazy stuff because there's still some crazy like choreography they're doing, but there's a lot less stuntmen in cars blowing up now with CG than there used to be. Yeah, it's like Mad Max is again, it's like always my go-to now for like yeah, the modern stunt movie that set a new bar and I mean I, I can't believe that they had people on 15-foot long poles <laughs> swinging back and forth <laughs> like in the Mojave Desert. It's just crazy shit. I, I I can't so, wait for Furiosa, but I also like can't imagine that they'll be able to meet that level or do that again. Just stunts, I don't, stunts I don't, don't do that I don't think they're going to try. I think it's definitely going to go in a different direction. Uh, and Sean, How can you top yourself with that movie? Exactly. Like, they weren't in the Mojave Desert. They were in Namibia. I just... Just throughout Mojave, because it's close Cause to it's a, California. <laughs> it's, but it's a whole know. different continent. They were a whole continent away. Do you think I can spot the difference between the Mojave Desert and the Namibian Desert just based on eyesight alone? I would assume so. (laughs) You know geography is an Achilles heel of mine, and I'm very uncomfortable and insecure (laughs) with you bringing it up. I only know that because I've been reading that, the, uh, what is it, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome book. Oh, the book, right? That looked great. Yeah, it's really good, and it's a fast read because it's done like in a documentary style. So uh. it's almost like they do a little setup and then it's kind of like clips of all the different actors and commentators and stuff talking about the film. Um, so it's, it's not a slog at all. It's really good. Do they have uh, a section talking about the vehicles? Cause I know, yes. um, I know that uh, a couple years ago, some of those vehicles they put up for auction and there were some, cause I was reading all the descriptions and there were some where they were like, yeah, this vehicle didn't actually make it into the movie because the crew didn't feel safe operating it. It was just way too crazy. Stuff like that. So I, like, I wonder how many amazing like mashed up vehicles they made that didn't make it onto screen. Well, and they talk a little bit about that and the fact that like the movie was supposed to happen like eight or ten years earlier. And so these people were developing these things this whole time and they would just get um, uh, cargo containers full of cars and parts from all over. And that it was like a scavenger hunt. All the artisans would go in and just start ripping pieces off these cars to make their cars cooler. Uh, And they were each, each of the cars has a backstory uh, like that goes with the driver. It's insane the amount of detail oh, in that movie. So cool. It's very cool. 
Yeah, they should just re-release that movie in theaters. I bet that could still pull like 50 million mm-hmm. just oh, from a re-release. Definitely. Even if they do like the black and white version to make it different, like people will definitely see that. Uh, so should we wrap up to live and die in LA here? Any final thoughts before we get to our ratings? Uh, uh, Josh? I was going to say, I think... Um... I love William Peterson. Uh, I mean, he's so athletic and physical in this role and seems tweaked out of his mind the whole time. <laughs> and oh, like, we, we forgot, we forgot to mention when he's running through the airport and he does that little gazelle leap over the black airport chairs yep, yep. in the, in the terminal. That was that, a, that was a rewind moment for me. <laughs> I had that to watch was, that twice. Yeah. <laughs> It was so graceful. Yeah, and those chairs, like, I'm, I'm still impressed with that because those chairs have some give to them. They're not just like straight, right? Oh no, he could have eaten shit easily. Yeah, like with the sag in the leather that he exactly. stepped on the pleather. Yeah, we just watched uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and there's a whole bit where a bunch of divers are supposed to dive over Jane Russell sitting on the edge of a pool. And dive over her into the pool, and the last dude just like clocks her in the back of the head with his knee and <laughs> oh, knocks no. her into the water. And I guess the story is that then the next shot, she finishes singing the song, jumping out of the water, like throwing her arms in the air. And that was a that was a a rewrite to to fit in with that shot. I think there was a. I could be wrong. I think there was an alternate ending to Live and Die. Because I think studios thought that the original was too dark, but they ended up going with the original. I could be wrong, though. What was the other ending? Do you know? I have no idea. But I know they they reshot something to make it a little bit more uplifting, because this is a pretty... I mean, the end is pretty dark. It's not presented... It's one of those movies where it's like, the implications are very dark, but the presentation is not... Right. So I, you know, and to name it to live and die in LA, I wasn't 100% that our main character was going to die until I saw that William Peterson was going off the rails and starting yeah. to be a real maverick and break the rules and not give a shit about who dies and whatever. I was like, okay, this guy's going to die for sure. And um, I mean, the implications of just not being able to ever escape the city. You know, because even with the informant who like she's ready to go, she's looking to the towards the docks, she's packing her bags and then it's like, nope, you work for me now. And it's like, can never escape Los Angeles. So the alternate ending actually had uh, apparently Peterson doesn't die and him and his partner get transferred to Alaska. And their supervisor takes all the credit for stopping Willem Dafoe. That Which, sounds terrible. Yeah, not not nearly as satisfying. Yeah. Azam, as Kramer said when Jerry thought he might go to L.A. You might never come back. No, I'll be back. Jerry, it's L.A. Nobody leaves. <laughs> She's a seductress. She's a siren. She's a virgin. She's a whore. <laughs> 
my god. So I am I'm rewatching Seinfeld from season one. And it's so funny to see like all these ideas that were expanded on even more in Curb Your Enthusiasm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And which I mean, ironically, something similar with Heat and uh LA Takedown. But um you know, Seinfeld the- doesn't really do it for me until season like four or five. Season when I feel like, uh, like after they shoot the pilot, it starts getting good for me. Oh, after the show within the show thing. Yeah, yeah. I do like that season with the show within the show stuff, but yeah, like my favorite season is probably seven or eight, one of the Larry David's last ones. And yeah. then I watched all of nine when I was a kid, and I remember to this day I was in fourth grade and we had a ta in our fourth grade class who was probably in her mid-20s or so and seemed like a complete grown-up adult to me at the time and uh i she knew that i i knew she liked seinfeld and she knew that i was watching it and i was like into the last season and stuff and so i read online that like readers vote their favorite seinfeld episode is the contest which is all about a contest to see who can abstain from masturbating the longest and so I went up to her and I was like, Miss Buckley, I read online that people's favorite episode is the contest. And she just kind of laughed and just had this like <laughs> mortified look. And I didn't know what masturbation was. And so I, I was just completely naive and innocent. Oh my and I just remember her laughing and like being embarrassed and trying to just be like, oh, that's that's great. That's great. That's great. It's like just... <laughs> a lawsuit waiting to happen right there. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, to finish up Live and Die in L.A., for me personally, I think this one is a three and a half out of five. Like I said, that last 30, 40 minutes really, really picks up, but I'm lost through parts of this movie. Um, I like William Peterson, but I don't love him, and I think the lack of a protagonist in this movie uh, just left me feeling a little bit unattached from it. So overall, I like it. I think it, it's incredibly well made, but it's not, it's not quite up my alley. Like if I, if I, excuse me, if I'm going for a cocaine movie, we mentioned Bruce Willis earlier, I would go for something like The Last Boy Scout. Like that's my kind mm-hmm. of cocaine movie, like Tony Scott. Uh, Azam, what, what did you think of this one? Yeah, I think, like, to get to your point of no protagonist, that's a big I don't want to say problem for me but it definitely when I actively dislike most of the cast or most of the characters rather it's much harder to root for anyone at all so it does leave me a little bit detached but some of the shots and the car chase do elevate it a little bit for me but um I think three and a half is pretty accurate for me as well Josh, what do you think? Um, I mean, I like this more than either one of you guys did, I think. But it is very much right in my wheelhouse of uh, noir becoming neo-noir, where everyone is suspect. No one is really, truly good. Um, You know, uh, John Pankow's character gets corrupted through the course of the film and winds up becoming another Peterson. Um, 
And like you Does said, that pretty much distill like why you you're pulled to neo noir is just like everyone's a scoundrel and the, the the character getting pulled into a like a seedy underworld. What? Because I know you're like a real big neo noir guy, and we've done like I don't know five five mm-hmm. neo noir movies now for this show, something like that. Yeah, there's something. What, so what what can you distill it down? There's something about that, like the dread that as an audience member you feel watching this movie where you know everything is either going to go wrong for our good character or they're going to turn bad themselves and they're going to cross that line. Like there's something in me that that sits in the pit of my stomach and it's almost like going on a roller coaster ride for me. Like there's a sense of of dread, there's a sense of anticipation for it and when you finally see it happen it's like there's a satisfaction to the fulfillment of that, um, you know, the walking with the shadow self of these characters, uh, really just indulging their worst instincts that I find really appealing. Like, um, you know, even in book club, the blacktop wasteland has a lot of that. Uh, and I just really appreciate that the stories without a good guy, uh, just really appeal to me from that. I mean, the the movie I wrote is very much in that same vein, although a little more comedic, but everyone kind of sucks. And I like that. <laughs> yeah, this, that's, that's this a movie... pretty good take of just life in general is everyone kind of sucks. <laughs> it's just on varying degrees. Yes. This movie just had no relief. Like, mm-hmm. maybe John Turturro has some relief, but... And then Defoe's he gets shanked kind in the, of in the is, yard. Like Defoe's kind of comfortable when he's on on camera, but yeah, I, maybe if this movie just had one or two points where it's just like a breather moment, I would yeah. be yeah. able to settle into the the vibe of it a little more. Mm-hmm. But as someone who's never done cocaine, <laughs> just like this movie's <laughs> more than I can handle. So on a on a five star, Josh, what what do you give this one? I give it four and a half. I really do. Have, yeah, yeah, I could see that. I love I this could movie. see that. We should do uh, some more Friedkin sometime. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of good Friedkin that apparently Sean hasn't seen. <laughs> so. I, I thought I had seen a lot of movies until I did the show, and then I realized <laughs> that I've just seen a lot of mediocre, weird movies that, like, any of, like, the low-budget horror movies from the mid aughts like the the tooth fairy the bye bye man uh i i've seen all of those movies but no hadn't seen casablanca just watched godfather 2 for the first time within the past six months uh are you serious so (laughs) oh my gosh like uh you know my old roommate ken right yeah so each time i would make some movie reference like they would go over his head because he hadn't seen a whole lot so I remember we made like a huge list of movies for him to see, like everything from Alien to Heat, like. And I remember we were watching, I think it was uh, Event Horizon. And I kept on leaving the room at like the more intense parts and he I could just hear him freaked out. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um yeah sean we were comparing the other day our, our letterboxed scores um what are you at for this year how many movies have you watched 
138 movies this year. Okay, so... How many have you watched? I've watched 178. Um, and mm. we're, we're on day 166, so I'm ahead of pace for my average of movie a day that I, that I want to hit. Is that your year. goal, to do movie a day? Yes. That's a lot of movie. Yeah, it is. The, the, the mini marathons while you're making a movie, help. you watch a movie a day? Yeah, it helps. Because I see how much the things I'm making could be better. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> this is how things get eternally rewritten. Yes. Well, should we take a little break here and come back and talk about heat? Yep. Sounds good. Josh, do you wanna do you wanna bring the show back? No, no, I don't. You're you you intimidate me, Sean, with your professionalism man, and this, and your unwritten rules. Unwritten process, man. I don't know. All right, up next we are going to be talking about Heat. It's a 1995 movie written directed by the great Michael Mann, who we have covered before on the show, talking about uh, Collateral. And or no, we didn't. No, we didn't. Thief, excuse, thief. I wanted to talk about collateral. Um, we talked about thief. This is kind of like thief two. Everything is ramped up and bigger and better in this movie. I would say, uh, Azam, you chose this one, and why? Of all the movies in the world, why did you choose Heat to be the one to sh- to bring us today? So when my dad first got our DVD player. I still remember the very first movie he bought was Heat. And I, of course, had never seen it before. But watching that movie, like, I remember, like, it's a long movie, it's almost three hours, but I remember being gripped the entire time. And, like, everything from the choreography to the sound, the soundtrack, amazing soundtrack, and then, of course, the heist scenes and seeing some of these actors who, at the time, I wasn't really attached to. But now, looking back like at this cast, it's just incredible. Like Everyone from, of course, De Niro and Pacino to a very, very young Natalie Portman is in this. So... It's been yeah, and like Sizemore too. Yeah, Tom Sizemore. I, I, I mean, I love I love telling you when we play video games, we're in business, definitely, <laughs> because that's that's all Tom yeah. Sizemore says in Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even like Val Kilmer is, I mean, always been a part of childhood growing up with Batman. Yeah, and this everything. is a this is a prequel to the Saint, I think. Yeah. I mean, could be. I mean, he does go off, right? He's the only one who survives, really, of the crew. Uh, so. Yeah, I think he's the only one, isn't he? Yeah. So, I don't know if you guys know this, but there is a novel of Heat 2, which Michael right. Mann co-wrote with Meg, Meg Gardner. Um, so, that's is that going to be August. a sequel, or is it a prequel? It's a sequel. It's about it's a Chris. Sequel. Oh wow! It's about Chris after uh, he's wounded and laid up uh, in a hotel somewhere, and I think that's where it starts. Oh, that's incredible! Yeah. Wow. 
I'd check that out for sure. Coming out this August. Yeah. So yeah, on I this think, um, Disney, because Disney owns Fox now, which owns Heat. And I think they greenlit the 4K release of everything, too. So. Yeah, there is. There's a Heat um, Director's Definitive Edition. That's uh, the one, right? Yeah. I just saw the 4K announcement. I'd say this is a. I'd say this is a pretty important movie of our friendship. I feel like this might have been one of the first DVD exchanges that we had. I think um, it's either it's either this or The Professional. Yeah. Oh, I remember. Yeah, I remember watching The Professional at your house, though. I think that was it. Yeah. And I think we started it, and then I finished it at home. Right. So you're right. Uh, that would have been a cool double feature, Heat and The Professional. That's also a very young... Natalie Portman. Yeah, right? That that but, totally would have fed into it when it worked. Yeah. Heat but, is just... It, it's just... A, for me, especially, I remember my parents renting it when I was, I don't know, probably 10. And I think I, I remember the masks from the, the first heist on the armored car. And then I think... I might have seen them execute one of the guards, and little boy Sean was like, nope, 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 too much for me, man, even though I was really into Terminator 2. But there was something about, I think the sci-fi fantasy of Terminator 2, I guess, allowed me to watch it, but the the violence in this was just, like, too visceral. I was was just going to say very visceral, yeah. Especially that first scene, the armored car heist, right? Mm-hmm. where the guard is just staring like that blank stare is staring at Wayne Grow and yeah, just gets shot. Cuz he has severe tinnitus. Again, yeah. tinnitus everywhere in movies now that Yeah, I'm I mean, aware you see that it. shit coming out of their ears, they can't hear you, right? I still He's slick. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, Sizemore calling everyone slick. This is honestly though, it's just it's such wonderful, like, storytelling without dialogue when we see De Niro. Just how cool is it when he does the ambulance heist? That this right. guy can walk in anywhere, blend in anywhere, and then just boost whatever he needs and he'll be gone like a shadow. And I love that scene, like, even from a sound design perspective, where, like, the music fades into the sounds of the hospital and everything is, like hyper-focused all these sounds are like very very loud as if like Daenerys character is focusing on all of the stuff it's like a great a great setting to introduce a character I think yeah and just like you said that synth note that starts the movie over the regency and intro credits yeah it sets just that synth note alone sets such a like a, a nighttime emotional crime kind of vibe to it and um azam i was also thinking that these the the intro credits look very much like session nine. Oh, they do that's right <laughs> you, you got the printed label looking yeah, yeah. labels which uh we watched session nine for this show oh and that was gosh. one of the movies josh and i each gave each other a movie that freaked us out so he gave me uh, No Roy the Curse 
and I made him watch Session Nine. And Session Nine still creeps me out to this day. There is. So I told I told Azam to watch it because I was so freaked out, and then he watched it with his roommate, and then yeah. they were freaked out. Yeah, and like there's just certain lines in that movie, which just like goosebumps, even watching Peter, it now. Peter Mullen, man. Peter Mullen. I remember after movie. watching that movie, my roommate and I walked to Seven Eleven, and like the streetlights kept on going out as we got close to them, and of course they were just flickering. But because of our state of mind, we were just like, "What's going on?" <laughs> and just freaking out that whole time. The only other time I've been really freaked out, like post childhood, by a movie was when I saw. Paranormal Activity, when it was in limited release, I saw it in a theater at midnight and getting oh, home. Yeah. I think I talked to you that night, Azam. It was like yeah. 2 a.m. And I was yeah. talking to you. I'm like, I'm a little freaked out, man. I feel like <laughs> something's about to like pop out of the shadows here. Yeah, I definitely remember that. The atmosphere building in this movie is just Michael Mann, like, really embracing the location. And I know that they like before filming they would go on these long helicopter rides like through the city and they would drive through the city at night and he would like shadow all these police officers just driving through LA at night to try and capture that vibe and i think it hits it like there are a lot of these shots which definitely hit it are you scared when they're doing the helicopter flying at night through the dark skyscrapers of downtown LA? Yes. That scares the shit out of me. Yeah. No, definitely. That, um, and the fact that there's two of them, like they're kind of swooping right. together in that one shot. Like, no, oh, I mean, helicopters yeah. are terrifying enough. Uh, and I noted that when Pacino gets out, he's such a badass, he doesn't even duck. Like, everyone kind of does that duck and run. He just walks yeah. straight up and down. You're like, oh, man. It's he's funny. so cool. Everyone everyone ducks, yet we know that the rotors are, like, 10 feet high. Mm -hmm. But still, everyone ducks. I say everyone. I've, I've been on a helicopter once in my life. I, I talk as if I'm getting on and off them all the time. <laughs> oh, um, let's see. Kilmer buys some explosives. Um, so, Azam, I made, I think I might have told you, but I made a Michael Mann cut with oh, one Oh, you sent N. it to me. You gutted yeah, it. Yeah, so I just, you I, gutted, cut, I gutted 50 minutes of What did heat. you do to my boy? I cut every single woman out of this movie. And what I did was I created a perfectly better than average heist movie. It's a little complicated here or there but it's definitely better than average but it's missing something and so watching this movie this time the parts of the story that in the past i've dismissed i decided to focus on because i, I rewatched this movie a few months ago and so this time i really wanted to pay attention to the women in this movie and um they all get such a shitty deal throughout this whole thing. Every single woman just gets pushed aside and dismissed as all of their partners and husbands are either after the juice, after the money, or just like after the hunt itself. And they're so, yeah. basically all ignored. But um, the Natalie Portman stuff, 
really hits me hits me different after having experienced a panic attack and it hasn't been for a while but after having gone through similar stuff like when i was 15 16 and she's freaking out because she can't find her beret i didn't understand that but then once you go through anxiety and a panic attack and like having this piece of shit dad that she just wants to to impress and to be perfect for and so that little beret was going to be like the thing that would maybe like win her dad over or like make the day good and that being the one thing missing it just that lack of control which causes her to just completely freak out i i can relate to that so much more now and it's it's so sad (laughs) this is an incredibly sad movie and it's just and i think that blue palette and color that it often has especially at night i think it just this is very very melancholy and somber yeah, there's a scene which I think was framed after a painting called The Pacific, which has a it's Robert De Niro's character in his home in Malibu with the glass and the ocean, and he puts that gun down on that table, right? Yeah. And just like the profound loneliness of the whole movie is like encapsulated in that scene i think like people have other people but they're not connected either by choice or by profession or something and i know um ashley judd has talked about how they spent a lot of time with like wives and girlfriends who had uh either husbands or boyfriends who were on like in prison or had just recently gotten out of prison to try and capture this dynamic. And I'm sure it's probably not always the case, but I'm sure this being pushed aside feeling is always there to some degree. Yeah. And also like you get the incredibly high highs and the incredibly low lows, or it's like these, bipolar relationships that can swing on a dime as you see like when when chris kilmer first gets home to ashley judd and hands her eight thousand bucks which for the armored truck heist eight thousand dollars does not seem like nearly enough money for what this man just did right so the whole i mean money in the 90s compared to now where you have like billionaires gaining or losing billions of dollars like the whole bank heist, I think, was only like fourteen million dollars or something. It's like twelve point one, twelve point yeah. two, I think. So he says, and yeah. split five ways, like. Well, yeah, and like the guy who gave them the job takes ten percent, yeah, hundred grand initially plus ten percent, and then you split it with John Voigt, and then the four heist guys. Yeah, here. Yeah, it's it's like. <laughs> Our perspective on money, I think, is messed up right now. But but also, you know. Chris um, had to pay back his bookies. So Yeah, he has a gambling problem, which is mentioned briefly. So I think when, everyone else scene, in that What scene like is that mentioned in? In that scene. And then... Uh, with Judd. And yeah. then I think when De Niro... Uh, confronts Ashley Judd's character about taking Chris back. I think it's mentioned there too. I could be wrong, but and he briefly mentions that when he sleeps on uh, De Niro's floor, 
uh, and De Niro asks him, like, didn't you have any put away? And he says something about, no, man, Vegas, like, wiped me out. Uh, Right. That's it. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. There's all this characterization that isn't center stage, but is definitely there. Like, Pacino's character, how he plays it is as if this detective is constantly taking bumps, bumps of cocaine before interviewing people and just throwing them completely off balance. But also, I don't, I don't think Pacino sleeps. He doesn't. Yeah. No. Ever. Like maybe he gets an hour, two hours here or there. His bed setup with his wife was incredibly awkward because it's like that staircase behind the headboard of the bed leading up, which means there's no bedroom door and all their sex noises are just going like straight downstairs down into Natalie Portman's world. <laughs> no wonder she's traumatized. <laughs> Azam, you oh, mentioned man. that the the painting that that's pulled from, um, that one shot, and that is something that Michael Mann loves to do. We've already talked about it. Like He loves to shoot people against the ocean. Right. Um, he does it in this, he does it in Thief, he does it in Manhunter. Um, and then he loves to shoot people against like the night sky or um, over right. a city backdrop. We see, you see that a lot of times. Um, and there's something about that, like that empty loneliness of those moments. Even if there's people together in the shot, there's something, um, I know I use this all the time, but something existential, like they're sitting there totally. reflecting on their life and, and their choices. He- yeah. Especially in heat, like how, like some of these locations they chose to shot where you have the city in the background and the characters in the foreground and it's shot. So the depth of field is such that the city kind of blurs into itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a dreamlike quality that definitely, like you said, it, it brings that existential element to it. Well, De Niro has two houses, one that's on the edge of the void of the ocean and the other one that's on the edge of the void of what looks like the stars. Because <laughs> the way that shot, that conversation with Edie, so with that's... Amy Brenneman is shot, it's like a tilt focus almost where it's like the city becomes a flattened plane right? in some shots. And then in other shots where it's the two of them together, he talks about the... The twinkling, what does he mention? The twinkling of, uh, what does he want to go see in the water? The Something algae. Oh, the algae. The, the, the algae, yeah. We actually get that In that here. shot, it looks like he's just, like, he looks like he lives on a star field or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the two of them, that conversation is so great. Just talking about essentially, like, life and, and what, what you're trying to get out of it. Right. But is that it's just a um, refining of the same scene from Thief, where they go to the right. James Conn and Tuesday Weld go to the diner, and he shoots them um, in with the the road and the the lights, the car lights traveling behind them um, in that diner that sits over top of the the freeway there, um, and this feels like the culmination of that same. 
I mean, he does this, right? He returns to these themes. He returns to these same people, these professionals who have nothing else in their lives and they're just obsessive about their work, but they want something bigger. I think part of it is he has been like Michael Mann had been wanting to make heat for a long time. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I think the script was written way back, even before last of the Mohicans. And then after that movie, he adapted it into LA takedown, which was like a TV pilot. And when they didn't like the pilot, he just did it as like a TV movie. And LA takedown is basically heat, but with a lot of the extra characterization stripped away. And then he basically remade, not remade LA takedown. He basically was able to, uh, Flesh it out. Flesh out, that's it. To flesh out the script that he actually wanted to do with Heat. So a lot of the scenes that are in Heat that are iconic are in L.A. Takedown, just in a watered-down way, which is interesting to compare the two. And it's like, um, L.A. Takedown is, it's TV movie length. It's, I mean, it's 90 minutes front to back. And I think it was made in like 20 days or something like, yeah. And interestingly enough, uh, I forget his name, but the actor who plays Wayne grow in LA takedown plays Ralph in heat, who is the guy that Pacino's wife cheats on him with. Oh, Xander Berkeley. Yes. That's it. The famous TV scene. Yes. From Heat. You don't get to watch my TV. Yeah, I think uh, during one of these recent Q&As, Michael Mann said that that's his least favorite scene in the movie or something. It's like, he wouldn't change anything in the movie except for that scene. Which I Really? I, I love that scene. Mm-hmm. Which scene? Where uh, Pacino comes back and finds his wife with Ralph and takes his TV set back. Oh, the, it's, you cut it really, out of the movie. That's the one. Because yeah. I would, I would take out the Wangro serial killer subplot. I don't, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, that's pretty dark. But that's I how. Just, yeah. Do you recognize Wangro Azam? Because we just watched uh, Con Air recently, and I'm pretty sure Wangro, the actor's name is Kevin Gage. And he's the dude that Nick Cage kills with the, the nose, the palm through the nose. Oh, is he kill. really? Oh, mm-hmm. wow. He's the dude in the bar harassing poor what's-her-face. Who's he what's-its? Oh, the uh, pretty lady. What's her name? Yeah. Jennifer Potter. No. Nope, Monica Potter. Monica Potter, there it is. Oh, uh, man, yeah, I, I re- totally didn't realize that. Uh, I love, God, just like a little tiny character, but we get Ted Levine in this movie, and he oh, brings yeah. so much to this tiny little character, just specifically with his voice. It just, his <laughs> voice is so fascinating to me, it doesn't make any sense. Like, physically, how does your body have to be constructed to have Ted Levine for Yeah. And even uh, 
William Fitchner in this is great too. For the uh, longest time, oh, I just called he's him young Van Zandt, in this, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Van Zant, or he's one of the guys from uh, from the Perfect Storm. That's how I know. Right, right. <laughs> I forgot about that. You're right. Uh, Sean, did you realize that the bad guys from both Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs are in this movie? The bad guys from Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. The serial killer. Right, we got Ted Levine, and then who's the... Not Brian Cox. Who's the Who plays the bad guy in Manhunter? Uh, Tom Noonan. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kelso. He's one of the... Uh... He's the one who gives them the heist and has all, yeah, all the yeah, plans yeah. and everything. Oh he's yeah, in the, the, he's in the, the wheelchair. Guy in the wheelchair. Yeah. yeah, I like his beard. You you kind of have a Kelso beard, except yours is fuller, Josh. Yes, it's real, but I need to thin it out through here. It's getting real. Do you? Yeah, because this is shaved down like on the sides, and so this is almost kind of sticking out, kind of poofy like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You got like a chin chin poof going. With yeah, no side beard to <laughs> to blend into it. Yeah, it's it's almost like a goatee, but I haven't shaved the sides in a week as well. I finally watched a YouTube video after growing a beard for fifteen years to teach myself how to properly trim one. So yeah, what 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 do we want to talk about next with this movie? So I was thinking like. One of the main things that still draws me to heat is the soundtrack. And like you have this experimental percussive soundtrack and then you have. I know Michael Mann did the insider, too, which had a lot of a lot of uh, Lisa Gerard singing, which mm-hmm. is here as well. And then you had Kronos Quartet all over the place. And then Brian Eno was here. You had Moby's cover of uh, New Dawn Fades, which is incredible for that scene where Pacino's character is catching up to De Niro before they have the little talk. Oh, really? I thought that was uh, like when he's taking the helicopter ride and then yeah. he gets dropped yep. off. I thought that was a Tangerine Dream oh, song. Oh, no, that's a Joy Division sounds- cover. Okay, because yeah. that sounds that song when he's in the helicopter and gets dropped off, and then he speeds down the freeway, chewing his gum so hard <laughs> to go yeah, and pull over De Niro. Scene, so that, that scene was that was that felt like it was out of, of Thief, like, the Thief soundtrack, uh, Tangerine Dream. Yeah, that's a it's a Joy Division cover. Oh, and, red. I mean, the original song is great, but the Moby song just it's slowed down. And it's heavier and it fits like cruising through L.A. at night at a high speed so well, just like predatory. Yes. Is some of that footage sped up? Yeah, a little uh, bit. Yeah. Freeway. It looks like it, right? There are some because he's driving really fast. <laughs> and I mean, it's part of his character, just like uh, Chase in Live and Die. Like it's like whatever it takes type thing. But and then also on that soundtrack was I always mispronounce the the name, but uh, it's uh, Einstrade Nebuaton. I think you mispronounce that. I always do. (laughs) Einstrutzen Nebuton or something. 
that sounded correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, track called <laughs> Armenia. And I remember getting the soundtrack for Heat. And in the in the movie, you only hear little clips and little bits of this song. But it is so disturbing, even now when I listen to it. One of the more disturbing, like, just creepy songs that I've heard. I'll drop and, it in here for sure. Yeah, and I think Michael Mann also used the same track in The Insider, mm-hmm. which is another great tension-filled anxiety-ridden movie so what's do you know the name of the heist track the bank heist track oh i don't but that's another uh, that, that's, that's another elliot goldenthal progressive constant tension constant building yeah and it's in i mean it's in the payday games but it's i've heard that music now replicated in so many different movies because it's just it's just the perfect amount of tension and it's repetitive and it keeps going and going and it keeps repeating and maybe it has a little bit build of ambience and atmosphere around it but you're just it, it leaves you on the edge of your seat waiting for the gunshot to stop the song and that's how I feel. It's just like, it's this build to like, when's the explosion going to happen? Combine that with like the imagery of the balaclavas and De Niro. De Niro's walk up on those podiums. It's so ridiculous, but so iconic. I fucking love that walk on those podiums. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I was mistaken. The song is actually called Force Marker. And it's a Brian Eno piece. But yeah, I guess in preparation for that whole heist scene, the uh, technical advisors for the movie actually had De Niro, uh, Val Kilmer, and Tom Sizemore actually case a bank while they were armed. And I guess the only people who knew about it were the security of the bank and they had to identify the guards, identify cameras um, and figure out where the exits were. And they were able to do all of that without alerting any of the bank employees. So that level of detail, like it even carries over to the actual shootout where before the shootout, the actors actually did a dry run or a practice run with live ammunition at a range that was set up to mimic the exact location of the heist. Does filming, does filming a Michael Mann movie just seem terrifying? (laughs) (laughs) Totally terrifying. Like to do a dry run with live ammo before doing the actual run with blanks just to get it right. It's crazy. And he is, um obsessive i'm sure i brought it up before but on collateral he made them repaint the taxi cab like eight or ten times or something because oh okay Uh oh okay we're back i we're going to have to go back and see where it disarmed, but... Oh, shit. Yeah, that's not great. 
but the timing should still be there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. That's not good. Just uh, drop that part of the conversation out, Sean. <laughs> yeah, the part about heat. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, talking about the heist, just so much planning went into that, and the soundtrack, everything just adds so much tension to it. At the drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. That's Josh's line. I love it so much. And uh I guess for the for the filming of the actual shootout like I know you you mentioned how visceral the whole movie is, but just that scene where the gunshots just hang in the air and bounce off of all of the glass, right? It's just incredible. And I guess they had shot it with blanks and they in post they went and added the normal gunshots, but something was missing. So Michael Mann just stripped out the post edits and they used the actual production sounds for all the gunshots. Oh, wow. I was curious because it's when you watch the gunshots in this movie, every single gunshot in it has location, whether the camera is in the interior of a car and things feel muffled. Or if the camera's out in the middle of the street and you can hear the echo bouncing off the buildings for blocks away. Or the the crack of the pistol versus the shotgun at the end of this movie. It's just... This is one of those movies... This is like this movie and Master and Commander would be like my 5.1 surround sound testers. Oh, or if definitely. someone comes over and you want to show off. You, you crank this, you crank Master and Commander... And it's like you're in the middle of the action. No, definitely. It's it's like that whole heist, you know exactly where everyone is because the whole thing was planned out so well. Like the location of everyone, the sight lines, how the getaway car goes to a certain location before the State Farm guy gets killed. What's his name? Uh, Dennis Haysbird. Um, Haysbert. Haysbert, yeah. Who I, Serrano from uh, Major League. Right. That's how right. I always initially think of him. He's the president. And he's the president and from 24. 24 That's it. Yeah. yeah. And there's Remember a shot. Remember when 24 ended one season with somebody giving him a poisoned handshake? And then the mm-hmm. next season they started it and they're like, well, we didn't really know what to do with that story. So let's just give him a scarred <laughs> hand and say like he burned his hand and then he recovered. <laughs> let's yeah, move on. <laughs> 24 got away with so much just because the pacing was so relentless. Like you couldn't stop to think if it yeah. was dumb or not. <laughs> but there's a shot during the getaway where they're in the car and they're all shooting out of the windows and it's just the car charging down with flashes going everywhere and it's so it's like terrifying to see and to think about that yeah i watching this movie i hate to bring it to a bit of a somber point but this was a lot more fun of a movie to watch before this became a reality exactly um when this movie existed like as a fantasy it was fun to watch but it it just has like a different feel now because this just this happens all the time and it's not even people doing heists. It's just people killing people with these kinds of weapons. And uh, it just 
makes me sad that I I can't even enjoy like action movies anymore because our country and world has become so fucked up in so many ways. Yeah, definitely when you see rifles like this shooting across a populated city, like it really hits home now when we see it in real life all the time. Yeah, and you might think that you're like on board with De Niro and his guys, but when De Niro's carrying Kilmer through that grocery store parking lot, he is just spraying bullets with civilians everywhere mm-hmm. and just doesn't give a shit. But and to use De Niro's own, there's another side to the coin. These guys hadn't killed anyone. They were just oh, stealing money. These up cops until... never should have engaged. Exactly. Never. And Pacino's character's drive to catch them leads him to get involved in this huge protracted gunfight right because what does it matter if they get away with 12 million dollars exactly it's not like they don't know it doesn't yeah the money is insured it doesn't matter at all or if you spot them you just tail their car and take them out of town or whatever this is this is like the worst cop instincts similar to like when a cop decides to go through with a high-speed chase in a highly congested trafficked area. Exactly. It's like, dude, what? The risk is not worth the reward. Catching these guys is not worth risking so many innocent people's lives. So Michael Mann talked about this in one of these Q&As where he was like, yeah, the police aren't used to going head-to-head with people that well-armed, at least not in 1995. So when they get into these huge gun battles with people who are armed and trained, things kind of fall apart. And I mean, the body count on these police officers is crazy. Just like after that car gets away, there is just a shot of all the carnage again. And there's glass everywhere. There's people rolling on the ground. It's it's crazy. There's one little girl who's going to need a lifetime of therapy. Mm-hmm. Oh man! Yeah, I mean, if you th- if you think you're on board with these guys, I think Tom Sizemore using a child as a human shield might change your mind. And not only that, Tom Sizemore's character has a wife and kids in this movie. Right? The, I I hate that. Like when I first watched this movie, I thought like he was trying to get her out of the line of fire or something. Because oh, he, he no. does try to, he talks to her slightly like tenderly yeah, or the yeah, way he picks yeah. her up. But no, he's fucking human shielding her. It's just, and the fact that Pacino shoots again, like this again, is exactly right. This like yeah. quest for bravado. And it's almost like all these guys want to like live out the Western, the Wild West movies that they grew up with. Oh, it's and you get that so especially funny. at the very end with the showdown and you get that extreme close up zoom. And it's not a zoom, it's just extreme close-up on Pacino's face, all lit after he makes the shot. And it just feels like he's about to put his pistol barrel to his mouth and blow the smoke out like an old Western. It's so funny you mentioned Westerns, because one of the producers talked about how Heat is a Western set in Los Angeles. Just like, instead of a stagecoach, it's an armored car. Instead of... A gunshot in Monument Valley, it's downtown. It's a bank robbery. It's cops and robbers. It's like, 
that's interesting. I really yeah. like the armored car stagecoach. Yeah, it's great to think about. That's exactly look what... At like, oh, sorry, keep going. I was going to say, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Um, my other podcast is called Stagecoach Justice. and Oh, that's great. <laughs> so we've been watching a lot of Westerns for that, and I didn't know if it was just in my head that I was transposing this to that setting uh or vice versa but even the like the character ar- archetypes of you know you've got your uh your good guy who will stop at nothing and your bad guy who's a little more conflicted like he he says he doesn't want a normal life but with uh what is it Amy Brennan Brennan right um he clearly does and it, you know, that's what tears him up and that's what screws him up is his, um, if he hadn't gone back for her and hadn't gone back for Wayne Grow, he could have been out of the city. He could have been, he would have been fine if he really did that's walk away thing. from her. Yeah, he could have gone with her, right? They were mm-hmm. all ready to go and then he pulls over, but you can, you can chart exactly where he makes this decision. And it's earlier on when the whole crew is having dinner with their families and he's alone. Mm-hmm. And even like, I think the cops are casing them and he's like, who's the loner. Right. Yeah. And then right after that, he calls Edie and he goes over there. And I think that's when his character makes that decision. Cause he's seeing all of these, this whole crew with people and he has no one. Starts I think breaking he, his 30 second rule. Yeah. Well, he makes the comment. Like when Edie asked, do you ever get lonely? He says, I am alone. I'm not lonely. But I think that moment at that table, surrounded by all those people, like that loneliness definitely got to him. I I feel like that's something that lonely people often tell themselves mm-hmm. to, to cope with. Yeah. It. I'll tell you right now, I'm often lonely. <laughs> I'm alone and lonely sometimes. Um. What did you think of the comparison and contrast between the the thieves family family dinner and the cops family dinner? Because it's you know they're almost back to back scenes. Uh, and it's actually the same restaurant too. Oh, is yeah. it? Yeah, is it? It's, I didn't uh, notice it's, that. It's the same uh, wine room, which I guess actually this happens like. It's a well-known place for cops to take their families, and it's also a place where, like, organized crime used to have their families too. So, would you say it's like Casablanca? (laughs) Exactly. There we go. (laughs) Uh, I think, I think it sets up the pieces as we're looking at two sets of guys from the. They're on the different side of the same coin, basically, or however you would put that. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that's basically when we get the famous diner scene at the end. It's basically, you know, these two guys realizing that they are the same. They mm-hmm. just, they diverged once by choosing which way to go. Do you go crime or do you go law? Right. But other than that, they are both driven by the same the same things which consumes them and consumes everyone else in their lives. And speaking of the women in their lives, I think, I mean, if we just want to go over, I think some of them really quick here, because Amy Brenneman, 
her performance is really good, and I feel incredibly sad for her and scared for her at the end of this movie this time. Like, it's it's sad, like, the, how she plays, like, a really great, like, lonely person when she meets him first at the library and then at the diner. and But when she finds out what he's done and yeah. who he is and that that terror... And then running away from him up that grass hill and basically being tackled. Right, right. And just held. Yeah. It's it's so scary. And then the fact that he's still able to manipulate her at the end by just saying, like, we could walk away from all of this. And and, and she's... I don't know if she is also so lonely that she's willing to look past this. I think that's or, a big but, part, yeah. I know, and I, I that makes me feel so incredibly sad for her that even after this man just went on a like a psychopathic shooting spree through downtown LA, she somehow wraps her head around it and is able to then still think like, oh, we can go to New Zealand now and we can live off of it. it it'll that's the last time. Starting now. He'll be a good man. So during casting, I guess she told Michael Mann she doesn't want to do the movie because she hates all the characters. They're just so, like, not good. And Michael Mann said that's exactly why he wanted you to play Edie. Because Edie is that ray of hope for De Niro's character that maybe he has a way out. And, I mean, at the end when he abandons her that's kind of game over at that point the when she's sitting in that car um she doesn't have anything to do so she does a little hand acting like and it's so good like you can just tell she's so stressed and doesn't want to be there and it's so subtle uh that Josh, I, I don't really know if it was implied it. there, but I read that as a bit of a Macbeth moment of Oh, that makes oh, sense. Oh nice. The the blood on her hands. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, yeah. Out out damn spot. Um the other the other story this woman is not fully fleshed out, but I thought her performance was really good is um Dennis Haysbert's wife or partner. Oh yeah. When when he's ranting and raving about how much he hates his job and how he's treated like dirt and everything and she says I'm proud of you. What you hanging with me for, Lillian? Because I'm proud of you. <laughs> you proud of me? What the hell are you proud of me for? Come on home. And he's like, what do you have to be proud of for? And yeah, that, that was a, that was such a, a great sweet, scene. beautiful moment. And then to see her find out through the, on TV? the TV at the oh, bar man. and just I'm crushed for this poor woman. It, 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 she seems like such a good person. But the social commentary on that where there really isn't a way for people coming out of prison to get employment without being exploited themselves. Is, that boss deserved so much more than just a pushover into a shelf. Right? 
cutting yeah. like 25% of their wages and taking it for himself and threatening to report them that they're high or drunk like in an instant it just what an absolute piece of shit which is like is why the system a big reason why the system is so broken it's yeah like, it's set up to fail how, yeah. yeah how how can anyone move on with their life if they're not allowed to even ha- be given an attempt to start over and i mean some of these the whole point of prison is to serve your time right you shouldn't yes. really have to serve your time after serving your time. You've paid your debt to society at that point. But your slate's never really wiped clean, I guess. There's always that. Even De Niro's character says, I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. Which is the... Uh, that's what he says in Den of Thieves, right? You're not going to cuff me or whatever? Yeah. And so... You know, with Ashley Judd's character, like when that cop threatens her by saying, here's what's going to happen. You're not just going to make yourself a victim. You're going to victimize your child. Your child's oh, going to grow up in the foster system. We're going to throw you in jail and your child's life is going to be permanently fucked up. That's such a messed up thing that that cop is doing. And that he manipulation. knows exactly what he's doing too. That yeah. manipulation. Yeah. It's, it's so gross. And the fact that even then she's i i don't know if you want to say it, it's her loyalty to the father of her child or what whatever shred of respect she has left for chris when she gives him the signal to go i mean she's putting herself at a huge risk there yeah um and yeah just overall what do you what do you think of ashley judd's character cuz i i think she i'd say she and um, there's basically like three completely fleshed out women here with Ashley Judd and Pacino's wife and Amy Brenneman and they each have their own they each have their own tragedy essentially yeah I mean Ashley Judd's character definitely feels the most trapped I think I mean she has Dominic and then I'm not sure what De Niro's character has over her to be able to talk to her the way he does in that like motel. Oh uh, yeah. When yeah. He, yeah. He threatens her. It's, it's real weird because he's like, he's trying to be a good guy, yeah. but he's also threatening her at the same time. Like, you will give Chris one more chance. Exactly. But if he fucks up, I'll make sure that you're financially set up and that you'll have custody and I'll be a good guy and I'll get your back and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then he hits all the coat hangers. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real, fucked up way to like tell someone you you're supporting them when you've got their back when you're doing it through like physical intimidation exactly like what she's supposed to say in that situation backed into that closet right did you guys think that there was a comparison between that scene and the scene where pacino discovers the the dead sex worker and her family is off to the side and pacino like goes and grabs the woman as she's trying to run oh, towards that her daughter scene is crushing where she's just holding that mother. Mm-hmm. That oh, scene. Yeah. I think that's the scene where you see the toll most on Pacino's face. Like yeah. the toll that this job takes most out of him. Yeah. He's a and ghost. Is it, is it after yeah. that when he goes home and his wife is mad at him because he missed dinner, but he also doesn't share anything from work. Uh, I think and, so. Yeah. 
And he's like, what do you want? You want me to tell you about all the fucked up things that I see every yeah, the, single day? The baby in the microwave speech. Yeah. yeah. Their relationship hurts because you can tell that there's still love in their relationship because when the movie starts, they're passionately making out and there's still some flicker of love and desire in their relationship. So then over the course of this movie to see Pacino basically smother it again and again until there's nothing left. It, it's, it's very heartbreaking. But I and think like her, she, her dealing with the, her daughter with Natalie Portman on top of this broken marriage and the fact that she has another piece of shit ex who is like mentally harming her daughter on a day-to-day basis. This this poor woman is just like put through the ringer in this movie. And I think the fact that Natalie Portman's character chooses Vincent's place to do what she does. I think that makes them because I mean, I feel like they reconcile to a degree in that hospital. And Mm -hmm. part of it is because Natalie Portman's character is close to Vincent. Like you see it when, when Vincent and his partner pick her up from the side of the road and she's happy to be in the car. Like she's, it feels like she's hung out with them before in that car. So, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that she chooses his place to do it. Exactly. Is significant. I think that brings them together as a family unit much more in her mind. Well, yeah, I'm I'm curious to like think about where this relationship goes now where clearly they they're on the path for divorce, but does Vincent try to stay around and be somewhat of a surrogate dad in Natalie Portman's life or does he abandon her as well? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, even in the hospital, he says, you're right. Like, the only thing I am is who I'm chasing or something like that. Yeah, all he is is the hunt. Oh, exactly. So he has then and there said he's not changing, right? No, and she finally seems to understand his nature. And at least, like, have found peace with the fact that their relationship will never work, and she can stop fighting for I it. I think, yeah, it's a it's a closure point. It's a sad closure, but it is it is closure. It's bittersweet because you realize that he'll be there when he's needed, I guess, but he won't be there at that day to day, consistent level, like consistent routine that she wants. Because during that scene when he comes home and the chicken is overcooked, like she says, like each time we're trying to set this normal schedule, like you pull away. And I think that's indicative of the job and of Vincent as a person. Well, and De Niro says later at the dinner table, like, how do you expect to have a family when you have to move every time I move? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he says, like, he's been through three marriages. And I feel like De Niro's honestly trying to figure that out because he sees his buddies, his criminal buddies, and they have families, and he's, like, honestly trying to figure out how to balance those two lives. But I don't... It's, it's impossible, as this movie tells us. Yeah, I mean, this movie is always supposed to have been a movie about... It's not a heist movie, it's about the people, right? And I think 
repeated watchings, you realize how fleshed out some of these characters actually are. Even if they're not on screen a whole lot, like, um, man, I keep forgetting his name. State Farm guy. Dennis Haysbert. Dennis Haysbert. Dennis Haysbert. I don't know his name. Him and his, yeah. yeah, like, they're not on the screen a whole lot, but the impact is huge, right? Was he State Farm or was he Allstate? Oh, man. <laughs> I just know J.K. Simmons is Farmers, right? Dun, 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 dun. And Samuel L. <laughs> Jackson will just do anything. Oh, my mom doesn't see Samuel L. Jackson as an actor anymore. He's in like the Capital <laughs> just, One just, guy. And it's like, oh, what a terrible room. state for your career to be in if you're known as the Capital One guy and not the Pulp Fiction guy or Mace Windu or whatever. Whatever, man. He's making boatloads of money doing those commercials. Yeah, um, and he has all the Marvel money, too, so he's doing well. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the chicken, the overcooked chicken scene. I love Pacino's performance in that scene because yeah. they're they're having the argument and then he just doesn't have the strength for it anymore. Like when he when he puts that piece of chicken down and it's he's just like done. It's yeah. It's oh man. Can we just talk about some of like the Pacino isms of this movie <laughs> real quick and like the out of context lines? Because for me, the best is the chop shop. Today, you're wasting my motherfucking time. Listen, man, listen. Did you fall in love? Come on. Did you fall in love last night? You went off somewhere? Vince. Just tell me that. I'll, I'll settle for it. You know what I mean? I'll buy that. Vince. Give me all you got! Vince. Give me all you got! I swear, man, my brother, man, my brother, my brother Richard's gonna talk to you. Man. I heard Richard. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but it's, it's, it's the rise to like 11 out of 10. Give me all you got! And then the immediate just diffusal where he then drops down to like a four and he's just like then comfortably sitting in the chair. It's such a bizarre turn on a dime of an explosion. And then we get it again with the with Hank Azaria. I just want to get mixed up with that bitch. Because she got a great ass. And you got your head all the way up it. Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's a uh it's an interrogation technique, right? It is completely throwing off whoever he's talking to and he's being completely unexpected and they have no idea how to react to any of that. So Hank Azaria's reaction when he says she's got a great ass <laughs> he looks mortified and the, confused and threatened and, uh, like there's like four different expressions at where, once where and, he keeps on saying who who and pacino says the owl thing that's my dad's like favorite line in the whole movie <laughs> <laughs> that one gets your dad yeah but <laughs> hank azaria is the only person who reacts to him correctly i think because <laughs> yeah. everyone else is kind of used to this and they just go along with it uh, but it reminds me of a uh, French connection when I'm sorry, Sean, um, <laughs> but, uh, they, they do the similar thing where he asks them like these weird questions. Um, if they've ever been to Poughkeepsie and what do you do in Poughkeepsie? And the guy's like, what the hell are you talking about? I've never been yeah, to Poughkeepsie. Yeah. It just, and it's makes a serial killer tapes in Poughkeepsie. Oh, nice. 
the Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie tapes. tapes. Yeah. Uh, but it's anything to like, as I was saying, like to throw them off and get them, you know, get their guard going in the wrong direction. Um, and they did the same thing in Barry, like towards the end of this season, there's an interrogation. Oh scene. man, I need to start that show. Oh my God. I know. It's, really? it's so yeah. good. And there's such a cool contrast between you'll see it eventually, but the professionals on that show and the cops in that show, <laughs> it's so good because the professionals are so professional and the cops are so stupid. <laughs> so bumbling. Yep. Uh, can we talk, just break down that entire dinner scene? I think that's definitely worthy of its own discussion. Um I love that it's set in a diner. This movie has two great diner scenes, actually. They have the, the one right after the heist with Wayne Grow. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> when, so that... When he slams oh, Wayne Grow and, and the Tom one guy Sizemore's, looks up from... Oh one guy God. looks up and Tom Sizemore pokes his head over, like, don't... The framing of that shot is so perfect. And it's great. Just Tom Sizemore has no reaction, has no facial expression, but he's the most intimidating thing the entire movie at that point sizemore is perfectly cast in this movie i also yeah. love when he has his kind of dry <laughs> laugh <laughs> is great. it is it because sizemore is actually like intimidating in real life like yeah i, I feel I think like so. especially around this time where tom sizemore is still moderately attractive and Starting to have status as like an A-list actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd be a little worried about running into him on a coke field bender. I mean, I'd still be a little worried, but <laughs> yeah, um, he's so, so good when, in this movie. Yeah. So they sit down at the diner, and I really like that. Initially, there's no music with this conversation, and it's like the music doesn't kick in until De Niro starts to talk about Edie. And it's after Pacino has talked about his wife. And so like when the music kicks in, it's like, all right, these guys are starting to see eye to eye. Right. They're starting right. to see the similarities. And they see that like they neither neither of us wants to do anything else. I don't want to be anywhere else. This is what I'm here meant to do. And sharing their dreams, De Niro, you know, having the dream of drowning and Pacino having dead people with black eyes staring back at him. It's it's just really incredible. One thing that really makes me laugh is when they start it, he, Pacino goes, so what? Are you just trying to get busted? I've worked crews where guys just want to get busted and go back. <laughs> and De Niro goes, you worked some dipshit yeah. crews. <laughs> That's, what, do you, what do you think of this scene overall? What the implications of it? How it's shot? It's, it's just, it's so iconic. So, I mean, this is the... When Heat came out, this is the scene people went to the movies to see, right? Like, these are two of the biggest actors at the time who haven't been in the scene together. Even after Godfather, like, they weren't in the same scene, right? Right, because right. they're, they're in different timelines exactly. in Godfather 2, correct? So yep. they're in different timelines in Godfather, and then in this, this is where they're in the same scene. And this diner... Or this restaurant was actually there. I think they closed in like twenty or twenty fourteen or something. They closed, but that table was there, and they had a portrait shot of both the actors in the same scene, like above it on the wall. 
And that's so cool. Yeah, it's like that's the one scene where uh, you don't get a full on smile, but De Niro is the most comfortable there, I feel. I was gonna say at the at the very end, De Niro almost smiles and Pacino yeah. just cracks a tiny smile when they say uh De Niro says, or maybe we'll never see each other again. Yeah. And I think I, I think neither neither of them really wants to see the other again. I don't know. I feel like they would both have been so much happier had they both just gone their, their own separate ways and both of been course. successful. But I but mean, the, the nature layers, of the beast. The layers to that scene where like, yeah, they're having coffee, but they're also working each other. They're getting information from each other. Like Pacino learns that De Niro has someone. And then later on, when Pacino sees a girl in the passenger seat of a car alone, like I'm sure that registered, right? He looks Outside sympathetic. Of... Like right. he, the next shot. And I don't know if that's like the Kuleshov effect where you've, it's just because of what you've just seen or if he's actually acting that, but regardless, right. that's what I read into that moment. Yeah, me too. And like, as soon as he sees that, he knows exactly where to run and he runs right past the car. Right. Mm hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. That I diner scene. coffee with Macaulay half an hour ago. <laughs> this is how he says coffee. Coffee. Very New York. So I guess Michael Mann had been friends with a detective in Chicago and a lot of that heist and that relationship is based on that detective's real life experiences with a thief who had been doing like, a, I think they were robbing department stores and it's like a series of robberies. And at some point the detective and this thief actually sat down and had coffee together. And after that, there was a big heist and the thief was killed. But a lot of the similarities come directly from those conversations so it's pretty cool to think that even the name uh, neil mccauley comes from that some real person that was out there michael man the stories that guy must have <laughs> even not his firsthand stories but just the people he's met and the stories that he's been told by other people oh yeah just crazy also i meant to say earlier i've never seen last of the mohicans Oh my God, Sean. <laughs> That's, uh, that was my first date movie. How'd that go? Pretty well. I, I still talk to her. She's very nice. Colleen Cara Carney. I've already made, we, I've heard that story because I made a joke <laughs> that her name was KKK. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So I, I really like the Van Zant story here. I think the the trade-off at the drive-in theater is a really, really fucking cool set piece. Right. And that shot of De Niro aiming the gun inside the car as the car is bouncing up and down with that soft suspension is so cool. And Kilmer up on the Kilmer on the roof. is so I mean this whole movie he's so cool. He he's definitely the coolest one, but then you get like 
Sizemore just blasting the shotgun, stepping out from around the corner. That's pretty fucking badass. And I think all these weapons tie perfectly into the personalities of each one of these characters. Totally. Sizemore is a spray and pray kind of guy. Kilmore is surgical and scoped. De Niro is kind of a hidden danger, so he has the pistol on him. Yeah. Uh, when they when he squishes that guy between the cars, that's gross. And just like <laughs> smashing his leg or yeah, knee or whatever. Yeah. yeah, there's so many smaller like that scene. I always forget until I rewatch it. And it's so great. These smaller set pieces like that, and the set piece where they go to some area and they're just like fake planning stuff. Oh yeah, because they know the cops are watching them. Like that whole I love that. Oh, I lo- and Pacino's so Pacino's realization and like <laughs> laughter. I love when a character just laughs because they got conned so hard. And oh, he's yeah. just like, are these guys good? These or guys are, they are good. good? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it you doesn't even make any sense. At? They're looking at us. <laughs> the uh it doesn't make any sense how Neil could get up that crane so quickly. Uh after like they split but he's up there taking the pictures. Like I'm, I'm sure to... there's some time. You don't dilation think Neil somewhere. has, you don't think Neil has a crane guy that lifts him up on a hook and hoists him <laughs> up there real quick for 500 bucks. <laughs> yeah. I got a crane guy. You want a crane? I got a crane guy. Uh, yeah, there was one cut that I wanted to bring up. Um, that's, let's see. I think it's in between those where, uh, Wayne grow, it's it's super heinous, but when he's assaulting that sex worker and he pulls her head oh, back. Oh, oh my it, God. And it cuts to the bottle opening. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that's such such a useful and well done and violent cut. Uh-huh. Yeah. Everyday action. That's really brilliant. Again, I do we need Wingro to be a serial killer in this movie? I think I you might need it in order to connect certain things together. Okay. But I'm not sure, really. I mean, he could have... Didn't have to be a serial killer. But I think... Michael Mann was trying to touch on a lot of the more seedier aspects of Los Angeles. Like, the underground prostitutes, all of this stuff. And maybe that's where it came from. But the same character, I think, is in L.A. Takedown. So, Well, I like his performance in the scene when he says, what is it, like, you don't know what this is? Yeah. You're, you're meeting with the Grim Reaper. Oh, that's creepy. And that music and is the, playing the in the music, background. And, yeah. And his eyes just, I, I, he's great in this movie. He doesn't have a whole ton of lines, but. When he goes to Van Zant, acting like he's hot shit and like, oh yeah, we took down some big scores and all that. So at the end here, um, we haven't talked much about Danny Trejo's character. But so when Trejo says he's getting tailed, he's not getting tailed by cops. He's getting tailed by Van Zant's guys, correct? I'm pretty that, sure, yeah. Yeah. Well, so that was my no, takeaway. So hold on. So one of Van Zant's bodyguards. Henry Rollins. Yes. Yes. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> is the one that rats them out, right? 
because he's an yeah, informant. He gets, he gets the shit beat out. Okay, that's the informant. Yeah. Henry Rollins is. Okay, because he gets the shit beat out of him, and I was a little confused by that. But also, Wayne Grow is the one who kills Trejo. Wayne Grow yes, is the one who and kills Trejo. Trejo's wife. Because yes. Wayne Grow and Van Zant are now working together. Um, when Trejo's lying on the floor of his house, is this the pinnacle of his acting? I don't think I've ever seen Danny Trejo give a better performance. When, but when he's saying, when he's whispering, to my you Anna know, is gone. Oh my god! Oh, man, this is this part is really tough to watch, and just sad and the fact that neil is still disappointed and pissed off with him even though he's clearly been tortured like neil's still let down by him Mm -hmm. yeah he's asking uh, like if things are blown and everything like what did you tell them yeah it's really excellent and really hard to watch i don't i don't think danny trejo anyone's ever attempted to really like humanize him in a movie like he is in this scene here ironically with a character named trejo yeah yeah but that's it easy to remember that house on stilts that that scene takes place in it exists in east la and the current owners like when heat's 20th anniversary came out they released a bunch of like where are they now little featurettes so the current owners say that under the carpet like they ripped up the carpet because they know exactly where trejo's character or i guess just trejo dies in that pool of blood and there's still like stains on the baseboards there from that scene it's just covered up with carpet so that's that's rad i like the fact that we get both trejo and dennis haysbert's character uh, with tears in their eyes, like this is such a dude movie, uh, yeah. but it shows like a different side of both of those guys. And one is like he's lost everything, and the other one is he's so frustrated with his lot in life and feels like shit. Even Wangro, how he dies, which De Niro oh, forces him to throat. look at him, yeah, uh-huh. and but it's just like. Look at me, and Wayne Girl goes from being an angry badass to for a split second before he dies, he looks like a, a scared child mm-hmm. again. And then he gets shot in the chest and the head. And it's just like, God damn, Neil, that's cold to make that guy feel that fear before you finally do him in. And even when he goes after Van Zant, and the shot is from inside looking at that huge glass wall. How loud is that shattering glass? Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> so loud. Uh, Van Zant's watching hockey on like an 18-inch TV. There's no way he could even see the puck. It's, if you tried watching hockey in like the 80s or early I 90s, could never watch I don't even know how you did it. I until, tried as a kid. Oh. Until HD video, I could never watch hockey. Like It was I, impossible. Yeah. It was like it was it was like watching a sport and then trying to infer what action is happening based on how people are moving and reacting. So you couldn't actually see anything until like the slow motion replay. It's funny because like my first real, other than like Mighty Ducks, 
my first experience with hockey was when my cousin got his Sega Genesis, and I think it was NHL Center Ice or some some hockey game. Like he had that, he had Streets of Rage and Mortal Kombat. So we played those three games like endlessly. Oh, and NBA Jam. But in that game, even in that video game, I could never keep track of the puck. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say Mutant League Hockey. No, it was not Mutant League Hockey. Do you remember Mutant League <laughs> Football do. and Hockey? Oh, those games were so much fun. Yeah, so that, we're kind of getting to the end of this movie here. Um, yeah, towards you know, the you end... See, you see after De Niro, I, there's, when he calls uh, John Voight on the phone... There's something um, very kind of sad and emotional about their final contact. And it's like the way John Voight says, take it easy, brother. You're home free. You're home free. Yeah. So you're right. So, so long, brother. You take it easy. You're home free. Take it easy. It's, and then and then De Niro drives through with Brenneman that bright white tunnel. The tunnel. Like, I was just about to mention that. Emotional, and it's like it's like his ascension to heaven with this blessing given to him by an old friend. But then he drives through that tunnel, and then it's like the darkness of L.A. takes over the car again, and you see him tossing in his mind, Wayne Grow, Wayne Grow. Yeah. And then he says, "Fuck it, I'm gonna go get him." And that's like the moment, the moment of his entire character downfall, because now not only is he not willing to walk away from Amy Brenneman in 30 seconds or less, but now he won't walk away from killing this guy. And so he's just breaking his rules left and right. Every time I rewatch this movie, I know it can't change, but I just want him to keep (laughs) driving. And I'm like, no, please don't get off. Don't. Oh, no. It's, uh, yeah, that scene, especially going through that tunnel. And you mentioned that white light that gets cast over. Uh, it's so beautiful. It's just, it's like the movie could end on a happy note if it just like ended near there. Yeah. And he abandons Edie. He abandons his hope. I mean, abandons Edie goes, I think it, it's really cool how he does the security guard shtick. Again, we see him just as he did with the pyramid, with the ambulance theft, dressing up as a security guard, the flashlight, all that. It's but just he sees it right when he walks in. He sees the shotgun behind the counter at the hotel, so he knows there are cops there waiting for him because the location of Wayne Grow was leaked by Pacino's character, right? Yes. Yeah. Put it put so, it out on the streets, let everybody know. Because exactly. He, he knows where he's gonna go. Then. So he goes yeah. in there knowing that the cops already know about this area. But he still goes through with it. Like And do you think that's arrogance? Uh just a blood vendetta that that's that strong he can't let it go? What Well yeah, why but do you think he can't? If it's arrogance, it's earned arrogance, because if it wasn't for Vincent, he would get away with it. Yeah. Like, the other cops are still descending on the place. 
but no one is out after him. Like they don't know where he is. They don't have that same sense. Um, you know, Vincent, when Neil decides to leave, Vincent has the premonition that he's gone already. Like as soon as he makes that yeah. decision that I'm going to actually take Edie and get out of here and just cut my losses. That's when he's like, yeah, he's gone already. It's not worth it anymore. And then when he decides to go back, it's when he, it's when Neil decides to go back that Vincent is on the chase again. It's like, it, it reminded me of um, like Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Like they can feel each other. That's what, I mean, Vincent keeps on saying, like he has a feeling, right? Mm-hmm. And then when, when De Niro's in the car leaving, he says, bon voyage, you were good, right? Yeah. So. But yeah, that's, I mean, I think the sheer anger at Wayne Grow, every single thing that went wrong, this entire movie is his fault, right? Mm -hmm. Everything from the beginning ambulance heist to the job, the heist getting leaked to Trejo being killed and tortured, like it's all because of Wayne Grow. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting in this movie because it's almost like there's so much confusion over who's the protagonist and who's the antagonist that Michael Mann's like, well, I'll give the audience one person that everyone can universally hate together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, The one scene we didn't talk about is when they're going into uh, the metal shop. Oh, man. So. (laughs) <laughs> this is another thing that happened in real life with that detective from Chicago. Mm-hmm. So they were casing, I guess, that crew of thieves. It was like a a high-end drill bit manufacturing thing or something with precious metals. So they had a tip that they were going to hit that place. And they actually did set up the stakeout inside one of those... Um, those containers Mm -hmm. and one of the officers moved and hit the side and made a sound and spooked the thieves. And then they were out. Like what was, what was that heist? Was that a side heist just to boost some platinum? Yeah, it was a, that was the metal. That was the metal job. Yeah. So it was a side. Yeah. Okay. That was not a preparation for the big bank job. No. Yeah, because later on we see them do the thief thing where they cut into the security system through the, the underground parking garage. Right. right, yeah. And that that's the only prep for the bank job. Okay. Yeah, this was a one-off thing. Uh, yeah, that, that tension though, and I fucking love the moment where the first time Pacino and De Niro make eye contact, it's through the infrared oh camera gosh, on the yeah. TV screen. Yes. And it's just such an ominous moment of De Niro staring down the lens, staring like straight into Pacino's soul, and he knows he's there. It's so cool. Yeah, the timing of that of that scene is so great. Because even like as an audience member, you're holding your breath at that moment when De Niro's staring right at you. I thought Pacino was going to like ream that other cop out. Every time I watch it, I I feel <laughs> I like that guy deserves to get a smack upside the head at least. Uh, 
Yeah, I was listening to one of the interviews with that actual uh, detective, and he was like, to this day, I have no idea why this officer decided to lean up against the side of this container. Like, it just happens, I guess. It's crazy. I like how sad that guy looked afterward. Just, like, just so so sheepish and sad, and like Pacino's about to lay into him, and then Pacino's like, "Ah, oh, fuck it, we're back to work." Yeah, that's all he said. Back to work. So at the end of this movie, De Niro leaves Brenneman, and he runs to the airport. Is he running to get just to escape now? Is he trying to still get on his plane? Did he? It didn't I, seem like he had a private plane that he chartered that would be, like, waiting for him, correct? Yeah, I'm not I, sure if he was just trying to get out or if it was a private plane, but... I thought Nate mentioned like something the, about that it was the two of them, like, on a small plane or something. Oh, so then maybe, yeah, oh, he was... Oh, interesting. Yeah. So maybe he was running to the hangar to his plane, okay. Because he that does run on the runway in front of a Boeing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, I'm sure that shot the way they did it with a long lens with a zoom in to make it look like the plane was closer to him, but still yeah. seeing De Niro sprinting in front of a working like 737 was pretty harrowing. Yeah. I, I feel like that's super fucking dangerous, even if everything's kind of set up. Another thing that would never happen now. No. And but what a, what an amazing location! I was just to put uh, the that, end of your movie at man, it's so cool. And like, what are all of these shacks out there? What are all of these little utility huts? I don't know. So that's the thing in in Los Angeles, which is a city made for people. This is this one area where no one ever goes, and none of these structures are for humans, right? It's like. No. It's just all electronics, I think. Exactly. Completely abandoned. The lights all come up and the timing on those lights. Oh, man. And I don't know. If this um, were collateral, a coyote would have run by them as they're running around. Oh, man. Totally. I love collateral. Also, um, the start of this movie. Sorry, as um, uh, we see the the L.A. train from collateral, this L.A. subway, which I feel like. Only Michael Mann has ever showed that in any movie. Yes. <laughs> I feel that's like it, uh, it's like a mystery thing in LA that just never gets acknowledged in any movies except for Collateral and Heat, basically. And they play, I mean, in Collateral, it's like a central character almost. Yeah. So it's funny to see like this movie start on that and be like, oh, Michael Mann will get back to that. He's, he's got <laughs> that idea now. He'll get back to it. Yeah. Oh, man. Collateral. That's another movie. Like, when that movie came out, I was so excited. The one thing that doesn't hold up for me in Collateral is the Chris Cornell Audio Slave song. It's just oh. too much. No. It's just too much. No. That's... People like a stone. Each... I, I think it's maybe just too much because the aforementioned Brad from earlier in the episode... I was in a class with him in high school and he made a music video for it. So I had to listen to that song as he was editing like 85 times. Did he really? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that I'm still amazed in that movie. Like there's a scene where I think Tom Cruise takes down like three guys really, really fast. 
Oh, in the alley? In the alley. Hey, homie, that's my briefcase. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Oh, man, that seems incredible. It's badass. It's a beautifully shot movie, too. Anyways, um, so yeah, sorry. stalking around and... Yeah, so each time what, I watch... What a sense of location and place, and then, like, you, you get time to understand this location and what's going on, and then De Niro shifts around the corner because of the light and everything, and it just... All of the chess pieces are established and set up here in such a wonderful way that, like, Michael Mann is an expert at, is giving the audience every single chess piece and informing you of what where they are and what the pieces are. And so then when everything happens, it's more fulfilling because it feels like things are happening with reason and with logic. I don't know if you've ever been under a plane that close. I... Only like driving into San Diego airport. So yeah, so in, in never, San Diego. But never out of the car. In San Diego, if you ever wait outside the Casbah, which is on yeah. Kettner, uh, the planes are really close coming into land, right? And it's so disorienting if you try and track them with your eyes, seeing this huge thing going over you. And I keep on thinking of that when I rewatch this movie, like... These planes are so close. These lights are so bright. Each time it goes over, how disorienting it might be. It must be. And like you mentioned, the chessboard, just imagining the chessboard being blind and trying to make a move. It's like... Surging with adrenaline. Yeah. Just having run, sprinted like a half mile. Yeah. Life or death. Yeah. And then just the added weight of knowing that your hunter is a man that you respect and can relate to. And he will never stop. It's a hell of a picture, huh? <laughs> man. And when we <laughs> pretty good. When we replayed a way out, right? The last scene in that game. I at least Oh, it's complete complete rip off of you. The last scene of that game for one of the endings, right? Yeah. Was just like, oh man. I felt like watching Heat so bad after that. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, just what do you think of this moment? De Niro steps out, Pacino sees the shadow, shoots him. I told you I was never going back. I mean, the emotions are already welling up, but then when I hear those first notes of Moby, God floating over, over the, the water, yeah. water, whatever. And they hold hands, and you realize that these characters, like the person De Niro is closest in this entire movie to, is an Edie. It's Pacino. It's the only right. person who really understands him in this whole movie. So it's it's incredibly sad, and like my I, I just every time I watch this movie, I cry at the end. It's, and it's it's the hand holding. It's just it's Pacino's resignation of what he's done and what he has to do for his life. It's it's De Niro's sense of peace almost uh, like I told you I wasn't going back um, I think Moby's music generally sucks but this is an incredible when, piece of music when, that's like so perfectly put in this movie when that crescendo hits at the end and heat shows up on the screen yeah oh my gosh oh, yeah. it's, it's a it's a goosebumps ending it's just it's one of like the most perfect endings I've seen in a movie that just says everything that the director wants in such a beautiful and perfect way and right when you want it to 
the title card hits with a music swell oh, and it just man. like it's perfect just yeah sends you out of the movie with such such grace and so many conflicting emotions it's just it's, heat is just an incredible movie i love the fact that um the way that this movie moves up and down in scope and scale right from these small intimate moments to the huge shootout to these big uh, is they're not like western vistas but it's a a vista of the um all the cranes and everything uh so you get kind of these big grand moments and then these little tiny ones like the it feels like you're going into a funnel and like they're funneling towards the inevitable at the the climax of this movie uh that this moment had to happen you know it's going to happen you don't know the outcome necessarily which one is going to survive but you already have Nate's words in your head of um Vincent can hit or miss but you can only you know right. you have to hit every time or you can't miss once uh so you already know that the odds are stacked in Vincent's favor right and there's just something about that being drawn in to this moment which which ends in such an intimate way that uh it's it's so much more than like the sum of its parts where you're like oh it's kind of an actiony heist movie with cops and robbers <laughs> like right it's just, no totally yeah it definitely rewards repeat viewings even though it's 3 hours long like when I, so rewatchable though. When I watched it first as a kid, the things that stuck out were, of course, like the heist. But now it's all these interpersonal relationships and these motivations and stuff like that. And it's yeah, definitely rewatchable. It's also it's just the pleasure also of watching a master filmmaker at my opinion, their absolute pinnacle. Yeah, it's exquisite. And it, like Josh said, it transcends what a crime heist movie like could be or should be and becomes so much more than that. I mean, there's a reason why every single heist movie rips off at least a portion of this movie now. Like sometimes for it's, good, a, it's for good reason. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. This is Michael Mann at his best, not phoning it in like black hat this is him being involved writing it screenplay directing everything so uh did we skip anything in this one any last things you guys want to add before we go to our scores i mean i'm sure as soon as we stop i'll have a bunch of stuff to say <laughs> that's always the case with this movie but yeah yeah i mean it's just Comparing both of these, Live and Die and Heat, I think, like we talked, we touched about how in Live and Die, you're not rooting for anyone. In this movie, I feel like I'm rooting for everyone except Wayne Grow, right? Mm hmm. Absolutely. I, there's not someone I'm rooting against. It's just, would I rather Pacino or De Niro win? Right. And like, ideally, I want them both to win. But exactly. That's, that's not how movies work. Yeah, I, I kind of want the Silence of the Lambs ending, where De Niro gets away and Pacino gets to keep chasing him. Like, yeah, I want it to to go on after this, and I want them to still be doing their cat and mouse game forever. 
that's a very uh batman joker one mm-hmm. needs the other or they both need each other type relationship yeah that just would not hit the same though. oh no i can't no i can't imagine this movie on an open ending no i can only imagine this movie with this ending because this ending is perfect in my mind the perfect ending yeah both of these movies i think the climax is always this heist that goes completely wrong right mm-hmm. like in live and die the the heist the car chase right everything just goes south and it keeps on getting worse and worse like they get away with it and then they find out they basically robbed a undercover agent and then in heat everything gets leaked out everything spills out into the streets and then it's just a roller coaster ride up to the end i think it's a pretty cool uh comparison i would never have thought about comparing these movies before live and die was actually brought up but watching them back to back it's pretty interesting seeing in some ways they're the polar opposites but in some ways they work really well together mm-hmm. and regardless of either movie the main message is los angeles sucks <laughs> 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 uh he's he's such an easy five star for me i don't think i need to go into my reasoning anymore azam uh he's been my favorite movie or in my top three since i was since we got a dvd player so yeah yeah i mean I, easy five. i'd say this is a top tenor for me as well yeah easy five and it influenced so much on me like I keep on bringing up sound design, but that is something I am more acutely aware of because of the number of times I watch Heat. And each time I go back to that heist scene, comparing that with any other heist where the gunshots are added in post, never holds the same weight as just this thick, these gunshots just hanging in the air for like, 10 20 seconds at a time and reflecting off of all this glass that is la like the location is a character again like i've said and yeah easy five star for me the guns in this movie are scary oh and, uh, yes they, the, they carry the, weight. i think the only reason i have a 5.1 is because of you and your dad is um because i <laughs> I watched District 9 once with you guys at your house, and it was like my first time seeing a real a real home theater setup. Oh, yeah. And I just didn't know that you could have sound like that at home, because your dad was like shaking the entire house with the subwoofer. Oh, yeah. I was like, all right, that was, that was pretty badass. <laughs> I, I want that. I meant to ask, did you get a new receiver? Uh, no. I, I, my receiver's being a little wonky, though. I think it's, I think it's time for a new Are one Are you still in the next using... Year or so. Still using the one that you sent me. Yeah, your yeah. Old one. So you're still using basically the one you saw District Nine on. Oh well, yeah. funny. <laughs> that all comes back together. Yeah, Josh, what would you give Heat? Oh, it's five stars. It's fantastic. Five stars and a heart. It, it gets the whole the full treatment. <laughs> Ooh, and a heart. Oh, yep. can I edit my can I edit my rating? I'm adding a heart <laughs> yes, too. Yes, you want. All right, you're adding a heart. All right. <laughs> yeah, each time. Each time I rewatch this movie, or each time I talk about this movie, I feel like watching it again. I don't know. Like, Yeah, I'll probably watch it again in six months or so from now. 
I kind of want to watch it again right now. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll bring us to the end of this Los Angeles crime fest of an episode that we had here today. Uh, Josh and Azam, do you guys have any movies, books, TV shows that you've been watching lately that you would like to plug? Uh, Books-wise, I'm making my way through... Oh, man, I forget what the trilogy is called, but um, the one that Annihilation is based on? Oh, oh The Southern the Reach. Jeff Vandermeer, I can't think of. Yeah, uh, I'm really... I can't think of what it's called. Yeah. It's the Southern Reach trilogy. Really enjoying it so far. I'm still on the first book, but... I just finished listening to Annihilation um, a few weeks ago, so let me know how you what you. Think oh man, it. another movie with just impeccable sound design. It's so yeah, good. Annihilation was one of our first movies we covered for the show, and it's still one of my favorites that we've covered. I think. Yeah, uh, movie wise, hmm. I recently saw, I think it's on Netflix, Operation Mincemeat, which I enjoyed a lot. So it's more okay. of a World War II, one of those many stories that has been declassified and feels like the whole war hinged on one of these moments type thing. But Nice. Yeah. Josh, what do you got? Um, I've been reading, like I said, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, the making of uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Um, I'm also reading, I believe it's called The Blade Itself by Joe Abercrombie. Um, I've been trying to get into more fantasy stuff because I have a lot of friends who are suggesting things to me and, uh, the blurb on the book said it's as if Kurosawa directed a fantasy movie and that's, it's right up my alley. It's great. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I was going to say that that book had you on the hook. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It, it was targeted straight towards me. Kind of rude, actually. <laughs> I think I might have recommended this on a previous episode, but what the fuck, I'll do it again. Wolfwalkers, 2020 animated movie. It was beautiful. It's great. It's, it's got kids in it, but I definitely wouldn't say it's a kid's movie. There's some stakes attached, and I really loved it. Um, so on that note, that will wrap us up. Um, Josh, we talked about watching The Hitcher mm -hmm. next episode with Rutger Hauer. And I don't think we figured out a pairing yet for that. No, but we're kind of talking about going back to our, our horror roots a little bit. Uh, so I'm excited for this one. So, yeah, no guest, just me and Josh next episode. Uh, so watch The Hitcher. We'll let you know what the pairing is. In the meantime, everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of your neighbors. We'll see you in two weeks and have a great day. Bye. Ding a 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 ding and.